Well, it is 2024. This podcast is not quite a year old, but we started at the start of 2023. It is now 2024. Gotta ask, any New Year's resolutions, any plans for this new and glorious year, aside from, you know, a really exciting election season that will no doubt titillate and excite us all? I'm still I'm still thinking that one of them is not going to make it to November. I don't know which, you know. I'm not sure, but I, I was looking at those numbers in Iowa, and it's like, it's like Trump is just doing layups. It's right now. This is a couple weeks to those of you who are listening at another time. It's a couple weeks to the Iowa caucus Republican party. And I mean, right now Trump is like putting up LeBron numbers in the primaries. So, you know, maybe we'll look back on this and feel a fool, but yeah, you know, you know, either one of them could fall down a flight of stairs or catch. Oh, they could just die. Like, and I don't mean that in some threatening way. I just mean like they are both old ass, old men as dirt. Yeah, who have both so, had COVID at least once a piece. I mean, their their New Year's resolution, I think, first and foremost, is to make it through the year. Mm-hmm. Um, mine, incidentally, is to start socially uh, transitioning. Um, it's something I've recently figured out about myself. I feel much more authentic and confident uh, as uh, she, they. And um, as part and parcel of that, I really vibe with the name Lenore. Um, of course, you know, y'all, y'all who know me, IRL, my, my, uh, my other name is fine for now, but uh, I will be eventually retiring that. So. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Lenore, for that. We were... You know, we're ringing in the new, we're ringing the new year. Y'all thought the mammothification surgery, yeah, what, what did they do in the mammothification surgery? That's my, my real question because clearly, clearly that's, it's led to, you know, time for introspection and whatnot. Yeah. We're, we're, we're forging, we're forging an arc here. We're forging okay. an arc here, you know, and I like, and I like where it's leading. Okay. Um, unfortunately, the, um, the, uh, Esekibo thing didn't work out, but you know, who wants that kind of responsibility? That's a good point. Um, so you got the consolation prize of uh of of dealing with the a lot of a uh of a non-binary woman. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that you decided I will have a lesser stress and I'll do that, which is, you know, some would say that managing the Sakiba would be less difficult, but you you've taken this you've taken this upon yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just so I'm just I'm just out. collecting I'm just collecting labels for your uh, for your racist Facebook uncle to uh, rant about. Yeah, the the, the <laughs> trans communist woke what else uh uh that that pretty much covers uh, it i think anime watching (laughs) mammoth dabbling mammoth dabbling esakibo ruling (laughs) (laughs) they they, they really they really get uh they really get uh get uh horned up about the esakibo Listening to Socialist Shelf Radio. Welcome to the Socialist Shelf, the podcast that is serious with bit characteristics and a bit with serious characteristics. Welcome back. It's me, Jacob, with Lenore. How are you doing today? 
I can't complain. Uh, I am. I tell you what, Francis Spufford, the guy we're talking about today, real interesting fellow, real interesting fellow. Um, well, similar. You know, uh, I, I, I would call him um, just from this book, Kim Stanley Robinson light. Um, but, hmm. I, I, but like not, no, that's not a great way. I, I okay. I, I maybe I'll flesh this out further on. I'll, I'll, I'll can continue with what you were saying, man. Well, no, I mean the Kim Stanley Robinson um, comparison is apt. I mean he has read Robinson, as mm-hmm. uh, the end notes reveal. A, he's got that similar dedication to, um, you know, uh, dedication to detail and sort of forging an arc, as we said, out of the um, out of the minutia of the world, right? Stuff that, uh, in his words, resists being written about. You know, the mm-hmm. the gritty details of uh, everyday life and uh, what they mean in the macro. And what do they mean in the macro? Well, according to Spufford, uh, it means that the USSR was uh, ultimately doomed. Because we are talking about his 2010 book, Red Plenty, about the Soviet Union during the uh, Khrushchev-Brezhnev era. And let Um, me tell you, once you're done with this, you'll feel like you've read plenty. (laughs) Am I I, I right? Always. Literally always. Always. It's a blessing and a curse. Blessing and a curse. Uh, I'm gonna confess something here. When I went into this, I actually when I recommended this, and I'm not saying I regret doing this book, but I genuinely thought this was a speculative sci-fi novel. Yeah, like, I, I I thought that going into this book, and then I realized about like a tenth of the way, and I was like, oh wait, no, this is historical fiction. I don't regret any book we've ever done. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess not. After the fact, I've certainly regretted it during this one. Not nearly the most have I regretted. My my problems with this are not ones that I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I spent time in my life reading this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I I did like full disclosure think this was a sci fi novel. Um, so make of that what you will. There's there's shades of it. There's elements of it. You know, there are people grappling with the um, with the numerics of it, with the um, with the emerging field of uh, cybernetics, which, you know, at the time must have seemed like um, like uh, science fiction working itself out IRL. Um, I it's still it's still a label that I struggle with personally. Like, I'm perfectly content to read this as historical fiction. Um, I think that's the best way you can describe it. Yeah, it's it's not. We can get into it after, like, we kind of do the author bio, but I will say um, this left me really wanting a speculative fiction novel about if this whole thing had worked. Mm. Like, if all of it, like, if they had invented a supercomputer in, like, 1960 or something like that, and, like, every wild Khrushchevian fantasy, like, had come to pass – like every over the top pronouncement, like they had been able to pull it off, but through like some magical feat of science, what that would look like, like would there have been a World War Three? Like what 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 would have happened? I kind of I'm interested in that now. And Red Plenty would be a hella good name for that as well, even though it's now taken. But uh, let's talk about Francis Spufford because uh, I know you've got a uh, author bio on him prepped for us. Yes, yes, Francis Spufford, uh, born in 1964 in England. He is a Cambridge man. His parents were Margaret and Peter Spufford. Uh, they are social and economic historians, respectively. So he comes from that background. British people love to be named Spufford. Spufford. <laughs> Spufford. Okay. Uh, fancy a bit of. I, I'm not going to get into it. A bit it. of Spuff. <laughs> Margaret Spufford as his mom. I'm like, I'm sorry, that sent me. Margaret Spufford at Cambridge. He does. He does. I'm sure, she's a lovely woman. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I, well, well, unfortunately, she's no longer with us. But I imagine, yes, yeah, she is. She she was lovely in her time. Um, 
Francis Buffer does have a bit of stuff, as we'll find out. Uh, and as we'll no doubt figure out a meaning for. Um, he got his BA in English, hey, you know, fellow, from uh, Cambridge in 1985 and went on to work at the book publisher Chateau and Windus. Again, very British very... names want to be Chateau and Windus. Chateau and Windus, Mace Windus. Come on. Where he was, uh, he, he was chief publisher of reader, uh, as I understand it, essentially, um, uh, roughly equivalent to an editor-in-chief, mm. from 1987 to 1990. So he himself starts writing in 89. Um, that's the year that his sister, you know, tr- tragically dies of a very rare genetic disease. And he points to that trauma as what really drove him to start, you know, creating something, right? To start really forging something out of the sorrow that he was um, that he was feeling. Um, we are in dangerous territory of being sued by Taylor Swift again, so we need to move on from 1989 as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's she's copyrighted that year, hasn't she? <laughs> well, uh, 1988, 1988 plus one, let's say. Uh, so in 1988 plus two, he starts being a full-time writer. He moves on to being a writer-in-residence in 04 at uh, University College London. He's Royal Literary Fund Fellow at Anglia Ruskin University from 05. He, he's bouncing around universities from 08 till the present day. He starts teaching creative writing at Goldsmiths College in London. In 2018, he makes full professor. Now, his first book is 1996's I May Be Some Time, Ice and the English Imagination. So the title, this is wild to me. The title comes from the last words of Antarctic explorer Lawrence Oates. He was on the, um, he was on Robert Falcon Scott's expedition. Um, and while enduring, uh, gangrene and frostbite, right, he leaves his trapped companions with those words. I may be some time, you know, and he chooses to go walk into the, walk into the Antarctic blizzard and die so they wouldn't have to care for him. Uh, which spoilers for 112 years ago, they all die anyway. But. That's what intrigues Buffard, right? Why would people do this shit? Why would people go to Antarctica? Um, and he writes about the cultural history of England and the polar regions, right? How they're discussed in fiction, how England's uh, culture and uh, sort of global imperial reach, right, inculcates this sort of audacity, right? And there's a Robert Harris in the nineteen in uh, nineteen ninety eight in the New York Times book review says that. Uh, when he pours on the literary criticism, getting through some of his prose can be like man-hauling sledges over a great white expense, which Dang. kind of familiar. But, you know, ultimately, like, kind words for the book overall, kind words for the uh, for the insights, you know. And it's something that I tend to agree with. You know, there's parts of Red Plenty that are very, very skimmable, but which you can see, tortured as they are, you know, you can see genuine metaphors and insights that he's that he's uh, forging out of the minutiae. Yeah, none of it's thoughtless. Like, mm-hmm. whether or not you like the thoughts, that's a separate thing. But like, you you have to you have to respect there is an, uh, a remarkable attention to detail. Everything is crafted with with incredible intent. Yes, yes. You know, little historical anecdotes plucked out of um, plucked out of what he's read. You know, there's stuff there's stuff that's not necessarily na- not necessarily anachronistic, but there's you know events, there's people, there's quotations that are moved around here and there for uh, for for sort of uh, narrative convenience. And he and he straight up admits to that. You know, it's it's like editing it's like editing a picture, right? You know, it's sure. it's there's there's a craft to it. You just have to be honest about it. Um. Now, nonfiction is where he starts, right? And he has got a memoir then in 2002, The Child That Books Built, which is about his own literary history, right? What books have had the biggest impact on him? Uh, famously, Neil Gaiman read this book and he's like, okay, there's one less book that I need to write now. Mm. Uh, so he follows it up with Backroom Boys the following year, which is a history of British engineering. Uh, 
The Bit of a Delay, and then Red Plenty Drops in 2010. And this book is historical fiction, as I said, set during Khrushchev, Brezhnev. It's his first fiction work. Now, there's a piece in The Guardian that I was reading from 2021 that discusses his literary trajectory here, right? Yeah, I actually read this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the one that's like, uh, I'm still so angry about what they've done to this country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know then, like, Spufford himself says that he stuck around in nonfiction for a while out of cowardice, right? You know, I revere fiction writing, he says. I didn't want to do it badly. There is something uniquely self-exposing about fiction. Every bloody sentence, no matter how much in theory it is removed from you, is reflecting your sense of how human behavior works. Which dovetails pretty revealingly with his approach here and in his work in general. You know, he says himself, I like stuff. I like the complicated, fractured, broken up, difficult surface of the real world. I like things that resist being written about. I'm interested in how the world works and what people do in it. So this book was long listed for the Orwell Prize for political writing and translated into nine languages. Apparently, uh, Jacob, you were telling me some socialists like it quite a lot. Okay, so none that I like know, but I was reading online and I, I repeatedly like in certain forums, there's like certain socialists who were like, there's actually a lot, like as a socialist, there's a lot we can learn from this. I like this book a lot, like just read it and go in with an open mind. I saw that like a handful of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so that's pretty anecdotal. Like I have, I haven't seen endorsement from like a socialist organization or something like that by any means, mm-hmm. but um, it, 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 but um individuals like it is a repeated thing of like hey there's criticism here but it's like criticism to take to heart and we can like learn from it and this that and the other so you know you know who you know who really really likes this book libertarians yeah i can imagine yeah I can yeah only imagine spufford identifies as a, a as a middle-class socialist um and to his amusement uh if 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 not to our surprise uh red plenty has apparently gotten popular among libertarians i love my frothing right-wing american readers he says which Mm. (laughs) i mean in a sense someone's got to (laughs) yeah you know it's it's that thing of where like you write something and it takes off with an audience that you really didn't anticipate it taking off with but at the same time you're like okay at some point, you have to have thought, "All right, I'm writing a, um, I'm writing a, a uh, critique of the um, of the first uh, major workers and peasants state." You know, it's right. It's a to... critique of a planned economy, fundamentally. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, and it's going to take off with people who are, you know, fundamentally against planned economies, no matter what. I, I don't blame him for that. You know, I, I mean, y- yes, and I mean, like, I guess, I guess, I, I don't necessarily. I, I mean, I think that that's a natural outcropping of what you're what you're going to accomplish here right like mm-hmm. there will be books where i'll be like it doesn't make sense that it picked up like like there'll be things like american psycho where like sigma males like that people who are being unironic about being like a sigma alpha incel actually like american psycho and think you should be like patrick bateman in that case that's insane i can't conceive of how that would happen i'm mm-hmm. I knew reading this book, libertarians would like this book, though. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there is a, there is a little bit of a difference there. Like, I think that like he can at least receive some blame. Um, there are not, places where it's indistinguishable from a critique of the of the planned economy, like um, in concept, isn't it? But what is my question is he doesn't ever spell and it's it's not the role of this book to spell out what he thinks a better system would be no. but you said he called himself a middle-class socialist there's some moments in here where he kind of throws in some praise for social democracy so what is he sort of like a like a jeremy corbyn guy or, or what what do you think I, 
I don't know. I would have to uh, read the rest of his work to really get a sense. Because I mean, Corbin has some of the um, Cor- Corbin has some of the anti-imperialist chops. Certainly, when he's talking about Palestine, um, well, I just meant like because he lives in the UK and that's like the furthest left political option in the UK. I mean, middle class socialist, right? Is it's interesting that he that he that he emphasizes that to me. You know, it's you get the sense I think that it's a socialism that. Um, that he believe he believes in a sort of socialism that's like okay well we can we can sort of reform our way at our way into this right we can we can curtail the worst excesses of uh, of uh, capitalism and maintain largely the standard of living that um that uh, I'm familiar with that's what the phrase means to me mm. yeah well i'm i'm interested i i may revisit him but we were talking about it on our own time i know right now i don't know if it's out yet or it's about to come out uh he's got a new book called Cahokia jazz yes yes you know anything yes, about yes. this yeah it's a murder Cahokia, maybe Cahokia, i i think Cahokia. um it's been a while since i uh studied um about it. i do remember from my eighth grade georgia history class uh Cahokia, right was a city in the um in roughly where illinois is now southern illinois it's a native american city that had fallen by the time um by the time that europeans came but it is a murder mystery set in a version of that city that has survived into the present day during uh this is kind of speculative fiction yeah and that intrigues me that really intrigues me because i mean it's it's impossible to imagine i mean you know not impossible to imagine but it's impossible to predict with any degree of uh certainty what that would have looked like but it okay i'm me. looking at it here the it's out but it's not out in america yet yeah Amer- it's going to be out in america this year he's written That's some other interesting st- he's written some other stuff too um unapologetic followed in 2012 it's a defense of christianity against dawkins and that whole new atheist strain of thought he himself is a practicing anglican um, his first proper novel now is Golden Hill in 2016. It's a period piece set in 18th century New York. Uh, that wins a Costa for first novel, a handful of other prizes, shortlisted for several more. He's got a book of essays that follows in 2017. Uh, he writes Light Perpetual in 2021. That's long listed for the very prestigious Booker Prize, right? And this is interesting to me. It's about an incident where a V2 rocket killed five children in a war in 1994 right they were murdered by nazis and it's about what their lives might have been like if they hadn't been killed and he teaches spufford does next door to where that happened very interesting so it's yeah. it's a more introspective like what it's like a sort of an imaginative thing of like what would have happened if uh if they hadn't been killed. Yeah just you know where these huh. kids would have ended up That's you cool. know he he is uh he's also a nerd uh, the Guardian points out in that article that I mentioned, uh, parallels to Le Guin and C.S. Lewis. He self-describes in his Amazon bio as a fan of Joss Whedon and Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and the year before COVID kicked off, he wrote a fan fiction novel called The Stone Table, set between the magician's nephew, second. set between the magician's nephew and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Oh my god. It's a Chronicles of Narnia fan fiction novel. Only his friends have read it. He wants C.S. Lewis's estate to let him publish it. If that doesn't happen, we're not going to see it till 2034 because that's 70 years on from the death of C.S. Lewis. But there's the Anglican coming out. Yep, oh, my yep, God. Yep. But yeah. <laughs> so mark your calendar, uh, Jacob, because uh, in 2034, we're going to see some um, apparently really faithful uh, Lewis prose from uh, this guy. Fantastic! I love that. I love that. So, yeah, fan fiction writer, um, son of two historians. Um you know, I see a lot of um, 
I see a lot. I, I see a lot of familiar things in somebody who does does really uh does really uh deep historical dives. You know, the difference between us being that uh, you know he actually sits down and writes. <laughs> hey, you know, I I do it. I do it on occasion. I do it on occasion. But, oh no, no, uh, no, I'm talking about myself. You, oh, no, you're I'm the kidding. writer. You're the writer. Uh, you? Well, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, um, he um, Spufford. I will say it is. It's weird to me that he likes Aaron Sorkin. That's actually kind of surprising to me, given how he writes um, in this and excerpts of other things and how interested he is in material and how, like, disinterested Sorkin is in material. But I guess sometimes you're attracted to things that are different. He, he likes fine. dialogue. He likes dialogue, you know, and not just, you know, not just spoken dialogue, but there's a cadence in certain parts of this book where the narrator is where the narrator is strict is literally like, Oh, here we go. You know, kind of, kind of glancing aside to the reader, which is, which is Sorkin-esque. I guess, but, um, well, we, we can hash out my beef with Aaron Sorkin on another day. Um, we will will hash plenty of beef (laughs) though. I, I don't know where or when or how, but perhaps, perhaps, well, Anyway, that's a pretty interesting overview of Francis Spufford, a still working writer. Um, unlikely to listen to this, but uh, Spufford, if you if you are listening, um, you know, uh, don't take it too personally. I'm sure you're a nice guy, but I didn't dig your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Red Plenty is, you know, to sort of give it an overall summary of what Red Plenty is. It is a book about the Soviet project, mid-century, mid to second half of the 20th century project of wanting to create plenty, of wanting to create an automated consumer economy. World War II is over. Uh, You know, the sort of war economy has passed. Um, Heavy production has been created in the soviet union you know the heavy industry metals and and resource extraction and all that is now effective now it's a question of delivering plenty through a um through a socialist system delivering a bunch of commodities specifically cheap goods you know not just the basics but then abundance beyond the basics of subsistence um that it's about that mission. Um, you know, that was a thing Khrushchev was big on, um, in real life. Um, Khrushchev had this, this sort of dream of like full communism by 1980 that he talked about in the 1961 party program that this discusses. Um, Which and you know, vicious as all. Oh, hell. it was incredibly ambitious. <laughs> um, and, um, it was working under, I mean, Frankly, there's a lot of history here. There's a, there's a lot going on here um, between what really happened, what didn't happen. And this book uh, sort of exists in the space of historical fiction. I want to read what it says at the top about what this book is. Um, I, I want to quote because he, he wants to talk about because like, you know, well, I'll just let I'll let uh, Spufford speak for himself. Quote, this is not a novel. It has too much to explain to be one of those. Um, Parenthetically, there are 53 pages of endnotes, so not lying about that. Mm -hmm. But it is not a history either, for it does its explaining in the form of a story. Only the story is the story of an idea. First of all, and only afterwards glimpse through the chinks of the idea's fate, the story of the people involved. The idea is the hero. It is the idea that sets forth into a world of hazards and illusions, monsters and transformations, helped by some of those it meets along the way and hindered by others. Best to call this a fairy tale, then, though it really happened or something like it. And not just any fairy tale, but specifically a Russian fairy tale. 
Where Western tales begin by shifting us to another time, once upon a time they say, meaning else when, meaning then rather than now, Russian skazki make an adjustment of place. In a certain land they start, or in the three times ninth kingdom, meaning elsewhere, meaning there rather than here. Yet these elsewheres are always recognizable as home. In the distance, it will always be a wood-walled town where the churches have onion domes. The ruler will always be a czar, Ivan or Vladimir. The earth is always black. The sky is always wide. It's Russia, always Russia. The dear, dreadful, enormous territory at the edge of Europe, which is as large as all Europe put together. And also it isn't. It is story Russia, not real Russia, a place never quite in perfect overlap with the daylight country of the same name. It is as near to it as a wish is to reality and as far away, too, for the tale supplied what the real country lacked, end quote. And frankly, it's this is a difficult thing to open a book with and then it be sort of historical fiction, sort of not, Mm -hmm. because that lends itself towards like, a more speculative view. And this book is not particularly speculative. It is more just like, what is it inside the heads of these people carrying out this planned economy? Um, and not like really more than that. Um, yeah, so it's it interesting to me. It's interesting to me that, you know, he has this conceit of, all right, this is a fairy tale. And the common denominator between the West and Russia with fairy tales is like, you're, you're being time shifted. You're being place shifted. You're being elsewhere shifted. Which, to me, is like, okay, you're using that over there to make a statement about, you know, your time and place. But he's not. He's not. Right, this is all cited. Like, even, Mm -hmm. like, like facts and figures. Not all of them, but, like, there's a lot of stuff here that it's like, yeah, that is how much, like, linen or pork costed. So it, it, it... Right off the bat, I'm like, why is this a fairy tale? This, I, I don't understand. Like, I understand it's not a novel. It's more of a collection of short stories that are well sourced. Um, I mean, it their... has, it has to be a fairy tale for socialists if it's a fairy tale at all, right? I suppose. Yeah. You know, cause every fairy tale has a fable, right? Well, not a fable, a moral. That's what I'm looking for. Every mm-hmm. fairy tale has a moral, right? Every fairy tale has an allegory. It's got a, it's got a, it's got an origin and a story that people told to, you know, make sense of uh, the world around them, you know, um, particularly as a, uh, as a caution, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're warning people about, you're warning kids about the, uh, wolves in the, uh, in the woods. You're warning people about, uh, you know, um, going too far beyond your, the, the bounds of your, uh, village and whatnot, you know? And in this case, you're warning people about, uh, you know, getting lost in the Soviet sauce. See, in this case, it feels a little bit more like the fairy tale in question by his own, like, argument would be the 1961 party program. Yes. Would be the, in 1980, in a faraway time that's not that far away, we'll have this, 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 and this. It mm-hmm. will be Russia. We will be named Ivan and Vladimir, but the sky will be bluer and wider and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, I, 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 you know, so that, so yeah, right off the bat, there's a little bit of dissonance there. And I think throughout this, there is a struggle over like how much of a history this is, how speculative this is, how much does he want to make up and how much does he really enjoy, you know, using details to build like a sort of short scene because he is a competent writer of short scenes he is a com- mm-hmm. it is is very well researched uh and it's very confident uh competent in its writings you know it'll say something like uh like i've just got random quotes written down quote most evening he walked 
He'd start thinking about something in the park, burping back the taste of fish, and find his feet had carried him wishfully to the train station again. Hot slate-colored sky, the caboose lights of departing trains, wavering to nothing in the distance like pennies falling to a stream bed. A bit of music would have helped, but if anyone played live here, it was only ever oompa oompa, end quote. Like, it, it, like it's a, it's, it's well, like, it's well constructed. The, uh, you, you get scenes that are well written. Um, it has one of my favorite openings to a chapter ever, which is towards the end in a pretty unremarkable chapter. Um, aside from, well, it's not an unremarkable chapter, but a pretty unrelated to this opening line that says, quote, Theodore's mother, unfortunately, was still attractive to men. Great, great mm-hmm. opening to a chapter. Things <laughs> like that. Like he's, he's, he's kind of got that down. So if you see this as a collection of short stories, historical fictions, making a cohesive point where sometimes the same characters show up. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's what this is. He's um, very, he's very good at the art of the opening sentence, right? He's very good at sort of, um, drilling down to exactly what is eating the particular character that he's focusing on, you know, mm-hmm. um, what's grabbing your attention. I mean, the very first one here, the prodigy, right? Uh, a tram was coming, squealing metal against metal, throwing blue-white sparks into the winter dark. Without thinking about it, Leonid Vitalievich let his, lent his increment of shove to the jostling crowd and was lifted with the rest of the collectivity over the rear step and into the cram of human flesh behind the concertina door, right? And then it's back to, it's a very introspective chapter, this first one, because Leonid is our mathematician, Right. And a real guy. Yes, a real guy. And no matter how uh, no matter how hard you're lost in thought, you know, you are still, you know, you necessarily your attention has to be grabbed by the train that, you, that you're uh, waiting for. And he goes on to, um, you know, it's a very it's a very sensory um, long opening paragraph. Right. You know, you get you get really vivid descriptions of the smells of the sights of um, and in a and in an oblique way as well. Right. Uh, the smell of vodka merged with the sweaty sourness of the workers a little further forward whose factory had plainly lodged them in a barracks without a bathroom, you know, you mm-hmm. know, they smelled like shit, you know, and it's that roundabout way that sort of adds that, um, that adds that finesse to the prose. And Leonid is in this and also in real life, a brilliant mathematician, a brilliant economist. He also, if you look him up, happens to look like Soviet George Costanza, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, um, but he, 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 Develop techniques for the optimal allocation of resources. He is the founder of linear programming as a concept. Like he is credited with that in the East and the West. He won the Stalin Prize in 1949 and the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences in 1975. Let me tell you, not easy to win a Nobel Prize as a Soviet uh, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Just wasn't happening. This dude was a genius. Um, and he, um, and you know, I, I, this this book he's very important to it because his idea of economic efficiency and economic growth and basically building a planned workers economy um that can create a consumer economy without capitalism is kind of the dream of red plenty the alternative mm-hmm. model for producing a lot of stuff um and right off the bat here we get into just the denseness of what this is and and i have to say like this is an incredibly um, ambitious project, and I respect the hell out of just how much there is here, mm-hmm. um, how much he cares about, like, you know, Spufford cares about, like, getting the scene right, like, oh, where'd the train be going here? What kind of ads would be up? This, that, and the other. Things that I wouldn't, you know, know to check. And then even in his end notes, he'll say, okay, I cheated a little here. Actually, this ad wouldn't come out for another six months. It's like, I, I actually, I do respect that. 
Um, yeah, but no, yeah, you can, to, you, to can like... do, you can do a little bit of elision in ways that I don't think necessarily contravenous points, you know, I don't think they necessarily do violence to what he's trying to say, except for there's one or two parts that I quibble with, but you know, that's oh, not no here doubt. for now, but he does. Um, and, and all that, that detail comes to say that there are some things later on that he glosses over that frustrate me, but I'll get oh, to yeah. that. But, but, um, I, I do think like, you know, grounding this historically is, is very important. Um, and he does it a little bit, um, here and there, but like the history of like the development of the Soviet Union is like something that like we certainly don't have the time to go into in fullness. Um, you know, there are many a book have been written on this from many a perspective, many a history. What we can say is this, and the book acknowledges this as most. Like, cause I, I, I feel like this is an important baseline for talking about Soviet economic development. And hopefully this doesn't put you to sleep, mm-hmm. but the Soviet Union prior to that being Russia was a capitalist but severely underdeveloped country going into the 20th century that was incredibly reactionary ruled by the czar um a just a, a horrible ruler um you know nicky was not a friend he was a he was a terrible guy um really underdeveloped very much under the thumb of western europe despite its power um absolutely devastated world war one then comes absolutely devastating when you have the bolshevik revolution it is not under the ideal conditions that marx envisioned when he's talking about a uh, socialist revolution Mm -hmm. uh that is not to say that we're like oh the bolshevik shouldn't have done a revolution i'm just saying it's worth saying hey these were not the conditions of plenty these this was a devastated economy that then right after that to end world war one they had to give away like half their factories and stuff just to just to end the invasion um and then following that they had to fight a a bloody war as a bunch of imperialist powers who just been fighting each other invaded the soviet union and backed right-wing elements carrying out pogroms across the country yeah grain i mean really horrifying shit i i think that the idea that like you know I, I would recommend books like Stalin, A Critique of a Black Legend or Khrushchev Light or some of those um, if you're interested in that period. Um, you know, none of them are perfect, um, but they're they're worth looking into. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Soviet economy had to do a lot of the lifting work that capitalism does, did in Western European countries and elsewhere, had to do a lot of that modernization and frankly, like modernization, building like heavy industry sucks like under any economic system nicely as possible meanly as possible anything in between i know that's not material to say but like it sucks like extraction and ore and oil and coal and building heavy metals and like that is just it's going to suck no matter what it's going to be terrible Mm -hmm. what this book acknowledges and what history acknowledges is the speed and efficiency with which the soviet union was able to accomplish that through the 20s and 30s um has never been replicated before it had never has never been seen before in human history and the only country that even rivals it is china yes it was without historical precedence you know, and, and China is the only country that's ever done anything remotely similar to it. Yes. Um, in its level of development over such a space, not to discount other socialist projects, but, um, and, and, and this huge, and then this huge development was, uh, was brutal and there was a lot of pain and there was a lot of scarcity, 
that scarcity was not created by socialism. That was scarcity existed prior to socialism. And by the time you come into the 40s, you have this devastating World War II. I mean, and, and, and even prior to that, you have all kinds of, you know, different intervention. You have blockades from imperialist countries. And then after that, there's continuing blockades, sanctions, attacks, attempted rebellions. I mean, it is an all out siege. It was not ideal conditions for socialism. It was not the, Conditions that were envisioned even by the Bolsheviks. They were ready for Germany and the other countries to follow right behind them. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the idea that, you know, the, um, there would be a certain level of development achieved within, uh, this or that, uh, advanced industrial country. And then the workers would overthrow it and seize it. Um, it did not pre, you know, the development of socialism as, as people, uh, you know, as, as many people were uh, writing about and uh, theorizing did not presuppose the conditions of absolute devastation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said, Jacob, that, uh, that, um, that the Bolsheviks had to, uh, had to deal with. This is what, and this is what really frustrates me just, you know, anecdotally in like, um, like history enthusiast circles that I used to be more, um, more, um, that I used to frequent more. Um, there are so many stories from that period about dudes like the Czechoslovak Legion, right? The, the, the Legion of, um, dudes who like got on a train and like traversed, Russia west to east, you know, to to escape like the um the forces of uh of who? Of the Bolsheviks, because mm-hmm. it was a fucking white army legion, right? You have all these stories that are that people are like, oh, isn't this cool? It's so cool that are from the wrong fucking side of the war. Mm-hmm. And and I also want to note, and there's something in this this book almost mentions it. Is is the people who carried out the Bolshevik Revolution and also the original revolution of 1917 that overthrew the Tsar, the people that fought in 1905, the people who fought against the world, the war in World War One, most of them, those hardcore partisans, die in the yes. Civil War. Yes. Um, the task of making socialism actually falls to people who were less involved in the socialist revolution. Another thing that no one intended. Now, that's not to say that they, they didn't pull things off. It, it continued to happen, uh, mistakes and all. And then this is not a podcast that is going to sit here and judge the history of the Soviet Union. We're not mm-hmm. capable of doing that. There's too much. But it's worth noting, like, it's important to see the Soviet Union as a country in a system of countries, as a state in a history of states. Uh, grounded in history and then you can make decisions based on what you think is right and wrong given that context um but which is the problem so much of the so much of the scholarship around the uh, soviet union so much of the so much of the discourse around the soviet union severely misunderstands it right and comes right. at it from a very hostile perspective but like the question of and it was a challenge khrushchev and i mean stalin at first and then khrushchev and then Brez, and, and, and all of them were faced with coming out of world war ii of like hey look we just got obliterated by World War II. America made money on it. Um, and now we got to catch up with America's consumer economy. That, <laughs> that's a, that's not an easy challenge to be handed. Um, and that is the challenge that this book introduces. I think the book could be a little fairer to the Soviet Union in the sense of like, given the conditions that they were going into this, you know, you have Khrushchev visiting the United States, seeing the, all the wealth and being like, well, how do they have all of this or whatever? It doesn't really get into imperialism. It doesn't really get into it. You know, it, 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 it throws its nods here and there, but regardless, the challenge is an interesting one. The idea that you can sit there as a Soviet, as a real believer in socialism, um, and say, holy shit, like, well, look what we have to work with. Look what they have to work with. How do we fight this economic war that Khrushchev has 
has envisioned and catch up. And Khrushchev's calculation is, well, our economy is growing by X amount every year. It's growing faster than the United States. We got to keep on this path. And um, notably, notably, this is this is where um, this is where we get into our second major uh, uh, point of view character, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev himself. Mm-hmm. He's on a uh, he's on a trip to uh, the United States to speak to um, to speak to the captains of industry there to be like, hey, this is how we do uh, socialism. I'll take your questions. So this is from the perspective of Khrushchev in those early chapters after looking at the United States and thinking about it. It says, quote, Some comrades seem to think that fine words and fine ideas were all the world would ever require, that pure enthusiasm would carry humanity forward to happiness. Well, excuse me, comrades, but aren't we supposed to be materialists? Aren't we supposed to be the ones who get along without fairy tales? If communism couldn't give people a better life than capitalism, he personally couldn't see the point. A better life in a straightforward, practical way. Better food, better clothes, better houses, better cars, better planes like this one. Better football games to watch and cards to play and beaches to sit on. In the summertime with the children splashing about in the surf and a nice bottle of something cold to sip. More money to spend or else more of a world in which money was no longer necessary to ration out the good things because there were so many good things all gushing out the whatchamacallit call it the thing like a cone spilling over with the fruit ah the horn of plenty end quote and 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 it makes that point of like and 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 then khrushchev says show the dog the rabbit show the soviet union what they're trying to catch in the prosperity of the united states um you know everything included and it's interesting that like khrushchev really did have this kind of perspective he did kind of like if you read what he wrote you hear what he said he had this idea of like outproducing capitalism, of like mm-hmm. out capitalizing capitalism. That is not yeah. to say Khrushchev was a capitalist. Um, I'm not, I'm not trying to do like epic communists, like, oh, there's no real, like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm just saying he had this idea of like, well, if we can have supermarkets like the United States, then that, that means socialism is working, which, um, you know, given going into this, you can see why that is going to be a challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And the um uh, I mean and it's it's worth noting, you know, Spufford does read what uh, Khrushchev wrote. You know, he does have a sense of um of the man, of the optimism, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the thing, right? He's setting up he's setting up that optimism, he's setting up that vision to have it knocked down because where does the book end, right? The book ends with Khrushchev, you know, um sitting at home, retiring, totally cut off from um, what he's uh, what he's tried to build and wondering where it all went wrong. Mm-hmm. I do like the part like it, it does deal with Khrushchev in like some interesting ways it nails his kind of quirkiness in a specific like way he's just like kind of this guy that loves to he loves to do his little bits he likes to be excited he's very excitable he's you know we all know the whether or not it's true I know it's argued about the banging the shoe on the desk story and all of that um, he's a uh, he he's got this sort of air of uh in sort of charisma and this sort of but also this sort of like not lack of formality to his uh to his uh analysis but i think that like also comes from the fact that khrushchev both in this and in the real world was just in a worker who was elevated to and that and that is something this book acknowledges some is that like workers really could rise in the soviet union there was a real capacity to go from coal miner to premiere like you know what i mean um and that's an interesting thing i like one part where it says quote whether or not they wanted him that's khrushchev there the force and capacity of the soviet state had obliged them to let him in think of it 
Miners had gouged at the stubborn earth, railroad men had blown on their hands at dawns colder than rigor mortis, machinists had skinned off bright curls of swarf, soldiers had died in the shit in the mud so that one of their own could demand to be received in this quiet rich room as an equal. Here he was. They had to deal with him. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate, you know, I do appreciate that also as a socialist. It's like, hell yeah, <laughs> they had to deal with him. Yeah, yeah, no, I have that, um, I, I have that uh, highlighted as well mm-hmm. yeah, and it's it's um uh and it comes right before um he's 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 talking to uh you know henry cabot lodge the secretary of state and uh, and other uh big wigs in the american government right he's at dinner with uh, the captains of of industry and it's interesting his assessment of them here in the very next paragraph right uh the capitalist looks surprisingly ordinary for people who in their own individual persons were used to devouring stolen labor and phenomenal qualities uh, quantities their cheeks were not notably bloated and for the most part they were wearing modest modern clothes rather than rather than the uniform of striped trousers and shiny black top hat in which they had always been represented in the cartoons of his youth nor did they have the pig snouts the artists had given them of course but what minds of technique they must be all the same what secrets of ingenuity they must possess as the owners managers contrivers of american abundance he knew how it was to handle a workforce from his time driving the metro through the best school in the world learning how to give your crews the kind hand when possible the iron hand when necessary learning how to read a man's possibilities and his limits learning when to listen to the specialists and when to override them and learning shortcuts and tricks and traps knowledge had mounted up in him like floodwater it must be the same here these men here at the very top of american capitalism must contain whole reservoirs of distilled knowledge and i have a note there that's a single word like nope mm-hmm. yeah de- definitely not um if if nothing else this book does show that the uh the elites of soviet society were working <laughs> they did have to put in a day's work that's yeah sure. you know as opposed uh, you know as opposed to you These know guys yeah, you know, calling somebody up and being like, hey, how do I pay less tax? You know, mm-hmm. like, well, but um, it does. I do think there is a little bit of a sideways glance at the sort of man behind the curtain here. Right. Because Bufford here says, um, uh, Mr. Khrushchev said Harriman, the uh, millionaire who's uh, who's the liaison here. Right. Uh, I'm sure I speak for all of us, Republicans and Democrats, when I say how firmly united we are in support of President Eisenhower's foreign policy. Right. Which. You know, to me, if you're if you're you know, if you're an anti-imperialist reading that you're like, yeah, you know, there is whatever whatever differences may have existed between the ruling class parties. Fundamentally, it is the same ruling class operating operating against uh, world socialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. Khrushchev, you know, he does his thing. And uh, there is the uh, there there is the American exhibition um, in the Soviet Union as well. Um the in the 1950s, you know, Americans come over and they show off, hey, here's what American stores look like, cars, mm-hmm. clothes, etc. Um, and this is the part I made of the joke on Twitter that capitalism is when Tupperware. Um, because that is kind of what this this part is. Uh it is these students and stuff going to uh investigate, you know, well, what is what is what is um you know, the capitalists have to offer. And they send in some, um, they send in basically the uh, Soviet government or or the local party or whoever send in basically some people to like be hecklers to point out the like flaws and the arguments or whatever. Mm. But, um, which, you know, and, you know, call me an authoritarian, call me a propagandist, but, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I don't see anything wrong with having some, you know, having some uh, theoretically inclined people, there to be to put the put what is literally intended to be propaganda in context Mm -hmm. 
Regardless, you have you have Galena, who is like the kind of main character of this chapter. She's a student at Moscow State University, a member of the Commissar, you know, very intelligent. She's a striver. You know, uh, this book has a lot of strivers in it, you know, very intelligent people who are like, I'm going to rise in the party. I'm going to get a good job, et cetera. Um, and yeah, you have you have. Um, interestingly enough, the American exhibition features the very real seven screen show, uh, that was designed by Charles and Ray Earns. Uh, this is a show shown to Soviet citizens that flashed days, the, the, uh, scenes in a quote unquote daily life of an American citizen, which it was the, uh, average suburbanite. At least that was whatever. If you watch it, you can, you can find it online. It was seven screens at once that was flashing different scenes of like, Picket fence, and I mean, it looked like a Coca-Cola ad from the 1950s, uh, but like seven screens at once. It was a very, it was meant to overwhelm um, intentionally. And in this book, um, I think it, Galena is supposed to be incredibly intelligent and incredibly whatever, and she gets like owned by facts and logic pretty easily by this like presentation of like seeing a lot of goods. I, I don't. Yeah. This is where the book starts to like lose. Like, this is where the first few chapters, I'm like, okay, I'm with this. I see, like, it's a critique of the Soviets, but it's fair. It's whatever. And then I, like, like you know, it's it's showing both sides. I disagree, but whatever. And then it gets into this, and it's just like Galena is like, oh, I saw a piece of plastic, and now I'm so owned. She, I mean, because she keeps her cool in the confrontation with uh, Roger Taylor later on. But, I mean, certainly there is a sense as she's as she's looking here. Um, yeah, here we go. She reached in her mind for the familiar comfort of her future, but the picture of the trim, comfortable life she had planned with Volodya, her guy, uh, always so near and easy to lay her hands on until now, didn't seem to be where she'd left it. It had been displaced somehow by the picture show. Uh, she hunted quickly through her memory, expecting to find it shoved to one side by the press of this American stuff, yet still intact, still as tightly filled out as ever with reassurance. She hunted and hunted, but there it wasn't. She couldn't find it, couldn't frame it in her head as a solid thing. It had gone as if the scouring wind of images had blown upon it, and it had abraded away. Like, it's, you get a sense right away that, you know, as, as well-versed as she is in what she has been sent here to say, right, you know, there is this sort of nagging thing in the back of her mind that's like, okay, well, these guys have something we don't. Um, and it's a, it's a sense that the rest of the crowd is, that you see the rest of the crowd is, uh, also, um, caught up in, though perhaps less self-aware. Um, and we'll get into the why of that, um, when we talk about her, uh, confrontation with, uh, uh, Roger Taylor, who notably, yeah, notably, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, who notably is a is a black man from America who's sent to be the emissary of the American way of life. Yeah, um, which is true. There were some. Uh, I don't think Roger Taylor was a real guy, but there were some real black delegates to Moscow mm-hmm. during this exhibition. Notably, that was caused a big stink in the American Congress. There were some senators that like it was a whole thing, um, which is incredible to me. Like you're sending somebody over there to you know sort of sort of smooth over the you know what was known throughout the world as the horrific racial situation in the United States, right? You're sending people over to the, to smooth that over, and there are people in Congress who are so racist that they don't even want to do that. Yeah, the the Soviet art, you know, say what you will with Soviet Union, their art about American race relations fucking obliterates, <laughs> obliterated the United States. It was just always like, like there's one of like a KKK guy, like anamorphing into a police officer and stuff like that. Like, uh, and that's that's a little uh, over. It's not anamorph, but like it looks like it a little bit. Things like that. They like really, they did really get the U.S.'s ass on that regularly for like good reason. You know, read read accounts of like you know black people from the United States who traveled to the Soviet Union. You know, people like um, 
you know, you know, pe- people who were people who were traveling over there. They said they and, and also not just Soviet Union. So, you know, you read about the Black Panthers traveling to China and stuff, and like how they, the experience was genuinely different. Read about Assad Shakur traveling to Cuba, like how in a government that is genuinely striving to you know not be perfect but create a multiracial democracy um, or, or multiracial socialist country. Paul, Paul Robeson, you know, who yeah, who Paul Robeson absolutely felt human. You know, he said he felt human when he went there. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not to say it was perfect or, and, and I want to like make that clear as well. Like, you know, yes. I, I, we're not, we are materialists here. We are scientific socialists, not utopian socialists. Um, so if this book also, like I would, you know, if this book was saying the Soviet Union was perfect, that would not be correct. Um, right. But I find this, this, um, this part to be odd because like, A, like Galena's not ready for this. Um, and B, um, how quickly her like vision of the world is shattered. I think I would buy it more if Galena had like traveled to the United States and then seen like a suburb and had her vision of the world shattered. I think this like picture show and then just seeing some cars, I, I, I don't know. She's supposed to be like this perfect, you know, Soviet and like that's Soviet citizen and like that's enough to like wreck her life basically. Cause yeah, it really it's... does. Like she like, loses her purpose in life after this there is a real yeah there is a real mystification that she sort of stumbles into here like um you know she uh uh they were the villains the americans in this story right she would have supposed that they would seize this chance and tell a rival story uh, a counter story in which they were the heroes instead they seem to have come with no story no story beyond this untiring universal brightness this glow spreading from every object it's this very it's this very sort of, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate idealism, essentially, right? It's, it's something that, that's inevitable and unstoppable and, um, and dazzling, you know, that she's powerless to resist. And I mean, even when she asks, um, you know, her guide about racism, he's like, yeah, the country's super racist, but it'll get better. Um, like, and, you know, that's kind of an, I mean, like, it's an odd, it's definitely odd, and it's an uncomfortable scene, her, like, calling him out, and obviously there's there's odd tension there. But, um, you know, the reason I stick on this is because, is, is because, like, Galena will recur later on with the scene of, like, one of the most heavy-handed metaphors I've ever read. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that yeah. when we get to it. Once again, this is a series of short stories. It bounces around in time, in location. Some characters recur, and some do not. Um... And some of these short stories are more competent than others. We have our guy in the um, in the next chapter here who um, is making the uh, making the arduous trek to see his in laws uh, now that he's married. I kind of um, like this one. Yeah, yeah, White Dust, nineteen fifty three. Yeah, the guy, this guy who has the best name in the book, Emil Scheidolin. Mm-hmm. Fucking love that name. Not a lot to say about White Dust aside from like um, aside from like a few little bits. Um, why he he's just making a trek and he's like we're close to Moscow but it's still dirty out here we've got a lot of work to do and Emil's you know a a believer in Soviet economics and he's gonna like make it happen and it does have a bit where it's like economics can be intensely personal and I did like you know that is true you know the yes. idea of like and the I, good I do like this bit here um 
Uh, let this be a lesson to you, Mr. Economist, he told himself. Anytime you get imperious, anytime you start to mistake the big and closing terms you use for the actions and things they represent, just do you remember this. Just do you remember that the world is really sweat and dirt, right? And it's it's in the context of not being able to uh, get a direct ride to the small village that his in-laws live in, right? He's got to take a bus to Alexandrovsk, and then he's got to walk in the, um, in the you know, hot, buggy Soviet summer. Mm-hmm. And then the we get Moscow in region, I should say. Yeah. And then we get into part two of the book, which is uh it these like parts open up with like italicized like essays or lectures or whatever. Yeah, it's part, similar to the narration in the in the crucible. Honestly, like I this is like one of the things that felt like Kim Stanley Robinson to me. I mentioned it earlier, but like there are a lot of moments in here that feel like something Kim Stanley Robinson might do. Uh, I think Kim Stanley Robinson would do it better. Um, but like this or like the moment later on with the cancer cells, like what am I? I'm a cancer cell or like the computer synapses firing, like these hyper detailed fixations on like different individual stuff to tell a larger story. Um, and then these like pauses for philosophical treatises that felt very Robinson to me. Yes. Um, um, you know, in a, in a different way, I, I, but, but nevertheless, but like it talking about like Marx's vision and it says, uh, theirs was a system that generated use values rather than exchange values, tangible human benefits rather than the marketplace delusion of value turned independent and imperious for society to produce less than it could because people could not afford the extra production was ridiculous by counting actual bags of cement rather than the phantom of cash. The Soviet economy was voting for reality for the material world as it was truly in itself rather than for the ideological hallucination. It was holding to the plain truth that more stuff was better than less instead of Calculating GDP, the sum of all the incomes earned in a country, the USSR calculated net material product, the country's total output of stuff. And yes, that might sound boring, but it is important to note because the idea behind this is why the planned economy failed. They are thinking stuff orientation. They are not thinking about profit broadly. They are thinking about how much stuff do we need, how much stuff do we need by area, and how do we distribute said stuff. Um Notably, also why it's very difficult to calculate the GDP of the Soviet Union uh, always has been. That's not just like because the CIA likes like because the American government and stuff like like to downplay the Soviet success. It actually was and still is difficult to say in dollar amounts what the value of, of certain stuff is when you're not using dollars or really even rubles as an accurate measure, just as kind of like a useful standard. Right. When it's inputs and outputs, you know, and I think this is something that. Uh, the socialists online who seem to like this book uh, did find interesting and did like about it as a legitimate critique of the Soviet Union. And they're kind of like, well, when we do our planned economy, we'll do it like this. And it's a little bit. It's well, a little and especially here to me. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. You're absolutely right. And especially here in the first couple of pages of uh, part two's introduction, right? Spufford gives the game away like um uh, Marxists elsewhere in the countries where the revolution was supposed to have happened had settled down over the years since Marx's death as social democrats, running parliamentary political parties which used the votes of industrial workers to get exactly the kind of social improvements that Marx had said were impossible under capitalism, uh, which he doesn't really return to what happened after. <laughs> yeah, that part, that's, that part was bizarre. Um mm. 
And he goes on to call the Bolsheviks a tiny freakish cult under the yeah, thumb that of was a, wild. Under the thumb of a charismatic minor aristocrat, V.I. Lenin, who had developed a doctrine of the parties and by extension his own infallibility. I mean, we don't I don't imagine we have to get too into the weeds here, but like I mean, part of the reason that they um that they gained the mass following that ultimately they did was that they were consistently the anti war party in a country mm-hmm. devastated by war. A I I think it's inaccurate i mean like i don't think i know it's inaccurate to describe the bolsheviks as a freakish cult um <laughs> it's just i mean like cool as that sounds um and like badass as it sounds like just if you read the histories you read what these people were doing you read reminiscences of lenin or like or, or anything on the ground the history of the russian revolution i'm not just talking about from like socialists read read stuff written by you know bourgeois um, people who are just genuinely trying to talk about the specifics of the history, talk about the letters. These people were on the ground interacting with normal people. Like these mm. people were not sitting in their armchairs. There's a reason they carried out the revolution. Like they, if, if these people were just like posters came together, then they wouldn't have been able to carry out the overthrow of the government. They did it very effectively and efficiently with mass support. Then were able to fight off imperialist invasion from over a dozen countries including the united states by the way in 1918 and 1919 and 1920 they were able to defeat the white army they were able to modernize they were able to keep power and this book even acknowledges um that their collapse the perestroika came not from a uh it came not from a dissatisfaction at the bottom but through actual failure of uh the ability to adhere to like Leninist principles, which I found it weird that the book admitted that, but it like specifically even said You're talking that. about that little, uh, the, the bit at the end where, um, where, um, what does he, what does he say? It's that bit where he's saying, well, you know, in, um, in, um, in China, they, uh, they pull back the, um, they, they pull back the, from the socialist construction of the economy. They reintroduce capitalist relations under the, uh, you know, Marxist Leninist political framework. And in, uh, the Soviet Union, he says they do the opposite, right? They, yeah. they maintain the economic framework, but they effectively stop using the state as a, as an instrument of class struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I've got quibbles with the specifics of it, but yeah. broad terms, it was an interesting admission because like earlier he's like, this thing was a freakish cult. It was like, you know, bad. But then here it's like, well, actually the Marxist Leninist state works and it's functional and it's uh clearly the majority of people were behind it according to the text of this book so um i i don't know i find i find it to be i find that to be odd like i think he's like from the get-go his perspective on like bolshevism um is is coloring his overall understanding of how this is also well and i mean even even from the American perspective, um, and this is back to uh, Khrushchev's introductory chapter, right? But you get a sense that there is a degree of myth making that um, that no matter your class, everybody buys into. Like the um, the head of Chase Manhattan Bank, right, is talking to Khrushchev in that chapter, like, oh, you know, fi- finance capital doesn't have an impact on uh, lawmaking in this country. You have to understand that if Wall Street likes a law, it's a kiss of death, right? You know. You, you have the head of General Dynamics saying, well, you know, we don't have a stake as a weapons manufacturer in uh, whether there's war and uh, and peace, which, you know, again, we know these things to be lies. But from the perspective of the people saying them, you know, you get the sense that they believe what they're that they believe what they're saying. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, to like move it along, because we can also like the theory, individual theories of this, individual short stories we could really, really drill into, but we are trying to talk about the narrative overall. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Next up, we have Leonid discussing a plan to better plan the Soviet economy, uh, dealing with concerns about, you know, revisionism and the idea of like, oh, well, if we do central planning and we do it differently, are we doing revisionism? Are we doing, you know, progressive socialism? Are we, what are we doing? They're worried about the politics of it. Um, so there's just like the individual politicking, you know, the, uh, the struggles of what reform and change looks like. Shades here and there of people um, going outside and above and beyond the structures, right? To, hey, murmured a latecomer, slipping into the neighboring seat in a cloud of better than Soviet cologne, right? Which is a first mm-hmm. whiff of the uh, of the black market ultimately that develops in um, in light industry and the people who will then inherit Russia following yes. Perestroika, yes, uh, which and, you, you see know. a a really interesting glimpse of them a little later in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you everyone's kind of politically concerned. You have uh what's the one guy? Nim uh Nimshinov um supporting him and them arguing, them doing conferences and them discussing like what's gonna get you in trouble, what's not, what's revisionism, what's not. And it's um, you know, if you're really interested in the details of the politicking, read the book. Um <laughs> I can't I'm not gonna go into every single like individual little bureaucrat that shows up in this book. It mm-hmm. we'd be here all day. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are parts of this that are eminently skimmable, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, again, the the you know, as in a fairy tale, right? It's not truly the uh, character that I think the you know, that you're focusing on. It's the um, it's the contours of the story, right? It's you know, it's the uh, it's the moral that is being expressed here, you know, and you know, in part, it's you see people getting bogged down in ideology and semantics here rather than in uh, rather than in the materiality of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you have this place uh, that I'm going to attempt to pronounce. Apologies to any Russian listeners. Akademgorodok. You think I got that? Akademgorodok? Akademgorodok? Something like that. Where the Gorons live? I don't know. Um, (laughs) It's it's a town of scientists. Uh, And this part's... I I like the town of scientists. I think it's cool. Um, in 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 my imaginary novel that I'm now creating, this speculative fiction novel about um, cyberpunk USSR, uh, yeah, this is going to be a basis of um, this is going to be where that the story is set. Um, you know, copyright pending, um, but um, uh, it's a town of scientists. They call the island because they basically have much less direct supervision. The real geniuses, the real heads, get sent here. Um, the people that they, the party trusts and knows is really good. And they're like, y'all need to come up with like the cool shit. And it's like people who worked on their atomic program, people developing computers. You know, you got, you got the real heads here. You see it through the perspective of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. What's her name? Um, uh, Zoya. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have a handful of characters here and, you know, some of it's spent like, flirting and hanging out and going to college parties and seeing the orb sea and like which is a man-made massive man-made reservoir um and debating these new ideas um and this part is definitely to show this sort of like dreams of the future like to show the um the heads behind like the minds behind the uh behind the statements the minds behind the vision of 1980 sort of uh, the people who are discussing this like utopia they're going to build and their different ways of doing it. And they're like hyper specific disciplines. Um, and this part is, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to imagine this town and these people interacting. Um, but ultimately, um, well, yeah, ultimately the, uh, their, their vision is not going to come to pass. So it's kind of got this, this melancholy over it as well, of course. 
Um, yeah, you know, you you have sprinkled throughout, right? This sense that um that there is that there is some rot behind the um you know Moscow is a set and like all sets looks more convincing from the middle distance than close up. Um, yeah. he uh, Sasha Galich, who's a a writer of uh, Sashimistic songs, yes, he started to brood lately on what was behind it, on what you would find if you peeled back a corner of the painted hardboard, which indeed um people do later in, later in the book. Mm-hmm. Once we get to get a, get some of these uh, medical facilities close up. And then in this academic town of scientists, you have a discussion about the rising of meat prices. And they're like, this is actually good because this is going to move along our plan for um, for our planned economy, for our Red Plenty program. So you see it kind of in this zoomed out way, like on top of the ivory tower. Um, and then you see like going down to sort of the masses, the people who are working in the factories and stuff, how that uh, impacts people. And you have um, you have mass, not mass strikes, but you have localized strikes in another Russian name, Novo... Novo Cherkask, yes. Novo Cherkask, which is a real historical incident and is pretty, pretty fucking brutal. Um, what That's happened? That's pretty bad, yeah. Um, um, and I, I mean, I, there's only so much to say about what happens there, but it's basically there's a large strike and the uh, people are mad about, yeah. the, about the conditions. And yeah, it has at to least do, like, there's, there's, a, there's a price rise in meat, as you mentioned, and it's right on top of a pay cut, they mm-hmm. say. And which... they blame it on, like, local party leadership. It's like, Yo, you, 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 you did this all wrong, man. Mm-hmm. But, like, the people are – and then when the people go to him, he's supposed to deal with them properly, and he fails um, – and it leads to a riot that is then uh, that is then repressed with police violence, which is um, you know um, not good. Um, <laughs> not going to defend that. Yeah, no, um, we're absolutely not defending it. But I mean, what's what's interesting to me because I was doing some reading about it, right? And you know, um, was it handled was it handled incorrectly? Yes. Was it was it um, not you know not well known and by design in uh, the Soviet Union? Yes. Were people um, were people who were related to those who were killed uh, inadequately compensated? Yes, all these things are true. What also strikes me is how unique this situation is compared to, say, what we see here in this country, with mm-hmm. police violence rising year over year and no and no sign of um, and no sign of that being curbed. You know, despite despite the world coming to, you know, having to come to a stop for somebody like Derek Chauvin to get in prison, right? It's, Mm -hmm. we were talking about this earlier, Jacob, there is much more, um, there's much more involvement from up high in the Soviet Union. There's much more responsiveness to such things happening, imperfect as they have been conducted. You know, you have Politburo members coming to settle, uh, to settle labor strikes, you know, to negotiate, saying, look, what do you want, right? You have- In fact, have... that was a specific Brezhnev policy. Like, it yes. was always a policy, but Brezhnev specifically was like, you gotta go to the, uh, you gotta go to deal with these people. So I'm not a huge Brezhnev head. I'm just, but that was what was happening, you know? Right. You know, you have, you have, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this book talks about, um, fundamental alienation from the consequences of the uh, policies you're putting into practice, um, that takes place even under socialism, you know, something that, um, something that, um, something that those who believed in it figured they would um, was a sin of capitalism that socialism could correct. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the book talks a lot about that sort of alienation. Right. And I mean, what the, what is said at the end of this chapter is, you know, you'll get used to it. No, I won't that Volodya. No, I won't, you know, 
I think there is the sense that this sort of brutality was much was much more uh, every day than it actually was, right? Mm. Like again, you couldn't imagine some, you know, some high-ranking US politician um I mean, look how long it took Biden to even get out to fucking East Palestine, Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there is, you know, imperfect uh, you know, imperfect as it was, there was a much more self-correcting um dynamic at work here. And also, the it notifies like, and it, it portrays it as a negative. And and I mean, obviously, there is no doubt that it was in some cases. But the fact that when like people in charge made mistakes, they were removed from the position. And this yes. book, it puts you in the headspace of the people who are in charge. And yeah, I imagine it's stressful. And I'm sure, not I'm sure, I know for a fact that sometimes that it was too punitive. But also, can you imagine your manager getting in trouble for? Something going poorly? No, the fucking people at the bottom in, in in this country get in trouble when the production goes down. They lay off people. They don't lay off regional managers and shit usually. In this book, it's like, oh, yeah, the regional manager has to answer, not the workers. Um, I don't know. To me, that seems like a better person to blame. Maybe they're being too punitive about it. Um, but I, I don't know. Things like I mean, that. We, like, oh, you have, can lose your job opened... if you make a mistake. Okay. We have open, you know, we've opened bribery. We have open insider trading in Congress. We have open pedophilia, you know, hello, Mm -hmm. Matt Gates. Like, and none of it, and nothing happens. Nothing. Yeah. So, you know, not to what about here. It's just, it's, it's just a difficult thing not to consider when you're reading the book. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's, uh, it is it's dealing with the challenge of a socialist state existing in the real world in a state of siege during the cold war during it a, a, a genuinely intense time i mean it likes to throw out stuff like oh they were putting so much money in their military and it's like yeah the threat of war was like under was always over their heads yeah nonstop i mean you know not to, you know not to you know not to take um not to take Kwame Ture out of context right but you know any any analysis of this project is incomplete without analyzing the state of siege it exists under, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 I mean, this is really a, I mean, yes, not to what about, but also like when you are dealing with a project that is new, right. That is unlike anything before in human history. And that is attempting, you know, in whatever way, in whatever ways it, su- it succeeds and doesn't succeed, is attempting to involve the great majority of working people in this construction. You know, that is where you have the right to say, okay, well, what would you do differently when somebody mm-hmm. when somebody writes a book about how it's uh, it was doomed from the start? Mm. We move along, and you know, in the book, and you have more people meeting other people talking about uh talking about like oh well we got to move around this part of the economy or to uh make our make our metric hit our metrics we got to use this machine or that machine um this Frank- this 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 here the uh the method of balance um here in part 4 right like it's 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 intriguing to me the cuz it's from this the perspective Glad of this it's intriguing guy to someone. <laughs> yeah oh, i'm sorry <laughs> go ahead so Maxim Maximovich Mokov, right? Mm-hmm. Maxim Maximovich Mokov was a very kind man. All of his colleagues remarked on it, you know. When he traveled to business, you know, he'd always bring back a thoughtful present, you know, here, you know, it goes on, right? Um it's a guy who is sitting up at the top making these decisions that ultimately uh, that ultimately filter down, right? He gets the he gets this uh, message that oh, there's this big um there is this big machine that some freak industrial accident has destroyed, right? Um, 
He says, okay, in the old days, heads would have rolled over this on principle. It would have been labeled as sabotage just to close the books on it. The organs of security would swiftly have uncovered a conspiracy of records, vilely determined to cheat the people of their rightful viscose. But the policy now was not to compound the effects of an accident by losing, in addition, the expertise of skilled workers over it. I mean, first of all, this is shades of how Reddit talks about the Winter War, right? This is okay, like the Soviet Union just did a rough cut and executed everybody when something went wrong. A. I mean... But also, this is a guy who has incredible power of himself um, doing all these calculations by hand, right, to resolve this sudden um, this sudden uh, problem that's come up with the uh, planned economy. And right here at the end, he says, uh, he would, he decided, do a little something to keep Solkenthib's minds on the job by tautening their coal and salt and sulfur supplies a tad. Bad luck might spring from carelessness and should be discouraged. So here is where, here is where the it's a little bit bizarre to me that you know such a such an enormous machine i know what i know what spufford is doing here right he's saying that this enormous machine ultimately comes down to the whims of the people driving it right to people who are like okay well i'm going to use this this uh, punitive force to sort of get the ball rolling in a different way right um which to me i mean it's not a problem of the uh, machine as, as it is of the pro- of of uh, the person driving it, um, you know, vibing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's it's it's a lot of you know individual things to discuss, and it is also difficult when you're dealing with like specific instances, right? When you're trying to tell a broad story of a big economy with specific instances, specific stories, yeah. often of things going wrong. I mean, again, right. this is an argument against, you know, complex systems, right? Not mm-hmm. against, you know, this system in particular. Sorry, go on. That, that, they, they're, yeah, therein lies the problem, right? You can take any grand system, no matter how great or terrible or anything in between, and pick individual stories um, with which to extrapolate a tale of the entire system. I mean, you just, you know, and... Um, you know what this reminds it's me difficult. of? difficult. Like, this is neither here nor there. So when I was applying to colleges, this would have been, like, over 10 years ago now, um, my parents told me, yeah, you know, you got to apply to a whole bunch of them because uh, because uh, you never know. Like, the person reading your application could have spilled buffalo sauce on his tie, and so in a fit of pique, he'll reject everybody who applies from Buffalo. And I'm like, what the fuck are you trying to accomplish with this with this anecdote here? Like, I mean, yes and no, <laughs> but that there is, there is something to that, though, right? Like, mm. in the sense of, like, if you were to say, but let, let's say that happens, right? Um, dude rejects everybody from Buffalo. <laughs> and that's the story you tell. And then I have to make a decision about what I think about the entire American college system based on that. Mm. That is a little how this book feels. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, um, And I know it's giving a lot of stories. It's giving a lot of perspectives. And some of them are more charitable than others. And the economy is working better in some other places than others. But it is like when it hones in on like, oh, the factory that deliberately does underproduction or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it does miss the fact that there are factories that are deliberately doing better and people are happy. It glosses over – it says like – it really yada yada is the part where it says, yeah, and most people actually did approve of the government. Like it yada yada is that. It's like I'd like to see some of those people. Um, if we're going to start telling the stories of individual people's lives, well, you know what I mean? Weird, right. It does, Cause it doesn't really jive with the, um, with Galena being lost in a sea of people who are enamored with this thing that they ultimately decide they can never have, you know, it's especially early on. Um, I think the book portrays the collapse of the Soviet union as something much more organic than actually it was. 
Right. Even though it acknowledges later that it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the book acknowledges the reasons behind the perestroika later on. We we already said. And but then it, it with, feels like with, it's with a much with a much more charitable picture of Gorbachev in the end notes than I think you or I would paint. Sorry. Go uh, on. Yeah. One hundred percent. Like I said earlier, it's not something I agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, But it, it's it's different than the overall like like if you see this thing as a collecting wave towards the fall of the Soviet Union, which this book self-describes as it says this is the prelude to the perestroika. Not really. Like, you know what I mean? I uh, love, unless um, you want to talk about, uh, like, bureaucratic incompetence, unless yeah. that's the argument you're making. Well, and um, and the and as we'll see, the uh, remedy to bureaucratic incompetence is a little behind-the-scenes finagling. Oh, my um, God, I love this guy. As Yes, my, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It's Mr. C, Mr. Yes. C himself, because I really know how to say his name. Chapter uh, 3 of Part Chakuskin, 4. Chakuskin, right? Chakuskin, yes. Chakuskin fucking, fucking owns. This guy's awesome. He, uh, I mean, like, he's not, but he's super cool. Um, he's the guy who gets on the phone and makes sure the shipment goes where it needs to go. He's a fixer. He's a fixer. My man's yeah. a fixer. He's yeah, not yeah. doing anything illegal. He's serving the plan. He's just can serve the plan a little better in one direction or another direction the other day. Ne- yeah, next day. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's an industrial accident and things don't get where they need to go. So he'll call somebody up who uh, has some stuff lying around that he can mm. uh, so he it opens i i do again you know um spufford is really really good at um at, at catching you know to 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 do a little bit of writing 101 here he's really good at catching the characters at the most interesting points of their lives right somewhere that is a descriptive microcosm for what they do right and then immediately upending it and what he's doing here what chakuskin is doing here what we find him doing is he is taking a um is it a samba class is it a um it's some kind. It's some kind of a Latin dance class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which he is taking as a favor from uh, somebody that he's helped. Um, that he's helped out. He has this mental, um, as we find out, he has this mental uh, address book that he keeps everybody's like names, numbers, what they do, um, small talk to uh, to shoot the shit with them to sort of grease the wheels a little bit. And that's how he coasts through life, right? You know, everything he does is calling in a favor here, returning one there, you know, and uh, making himself indispensable to everybody. Yeah, he has a part where he says he's explained to a guy why he should be hired or contracted by his agency. He says, I'm a servant of the plan. That's what. I make what's supposed to happen, happen. You can call me a purchasing agent. You can call me an expediter. You can be crude and call me a pusher. It's all the same thing. I help things along in the direction the plan says they should be going. I don't steal. I don't give bribes or take bribes. I persuade the wheels to go round. That's all. Here, have a glass of wine. It's not bad. It's Azerbaijani. I don't usually drink alcohol so early, bleated Stepavoy, uh, or however you say his name. Of course you don't. You're at your desk. You want to concentrate. But now you're not at your desk. You're traveling on business for the firm. And you're interviewing someone who's going to be very useful to you. Believe me. So a little sip won't hurt. Cheers. And then he says, and then, yeah, he goes on and, you know, he's talking about, like, how he gets different stuff done. It's It's very, like... He's 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 a lot of fun. He's a fun character, and then of course you find out that he has ties to organized crime, which also gets interesting. But um, he visits like a bathhouse, like a hidden bathhouse, where there's like a bunch of like criminals or whatever that like tattooed criminals and shit. And apparently, like this was interesting. The um, Spufford says in the end notes, yeah, all these tattoos, you know, have have some have some sort of um, um, attestation in the historical record. mm Hmm. Well, there was one, like, yeah, like, there's some, like, crazy ones. Like, yeah, he says, like, like, there's the one guy where he's got a, a cac, 
a tattoo of, quote, a blonde in tears choking on the monster cock of the goatish commissar with the star of David on his forehead. Like, what the fuck? Like, crazy shit. And all that to say is, you know, notably, these are the guys actually who, you know, inherit the Soviet Union after the perestroika. Like, these, the the mobsters, the gangsters, the, like, the low, these guys, like, you know, um, um, uh, these are the guys who kind of, like, create the capital. I mean, with the help of, like, imperialists and, 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 and foreign investment, Mm -hmm. they create, you know, the new, the new system in the post-Soviet states in Russia and Ukraine and all the little ones. Um, they, they are, they are, uh, you know, no offense to the little ones, you know, my heart out to Estonia and all y'all. Uh, but they, 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 that's the new world that's created. It is by, it is inherited from these guys, these pushers, these, these, um, you know, these wheelers and dealers, these salesmen. They are the new alternative. They are what capitalism will bring. Um, which like it doesn't focus on, but it's hard not to think about. I do love his turns of phrase, even if I don't like what they represent, right? So, Chikuskin meets with this guy with the hideously anti-Semitic tattoos and whatnot, and then he gets picked up afterward by a couple of uh, police dudes who have uh, who have uh, fingered him and figure out what he, what's what's uh, going on, and they rough him up. Um, it, but it was not bright out now. It was full dark and damn near as thick with snow as in a blizzard, albeit the fall was all a slow vertical tumble rather than a horizontal blow, you know, shades of House Buffard's portraying the sort of slow slide of the Soviet Union, right? Uh, He was disappearing just kneeling here. The lieutenant had only meant to give him a scare, but he might have killed him anyway by accident if Chikuskin didn't stir himself and get to shelter. Dizzily, he stood and waded back to the highway, beating at the litter of perfect mathematical beauty, which had dropped from the sky to his hair and his shoulders and his arms, which again, you know, we, we will remember, right. You know, that that's the way that um, Leonid uh, Vitalievich talks about the world, right. You know, perfect mathematical beauty, the beauty of systems of small things, you know, in microcosm representing big things. Right. And now you're in the, uh, in a sea of perfect mathematical beauty of snowflakes and none of it is helping you get warm. You know, the metaphor there is, uh, is, is, is quite literally chilling. Nice. <laughs> then we have this bullshit thing about the Bolsheviks as philosopher kings. I don't really know what to do about that. He makes the argument that the Bolsheviks are Plato's Republic philosopher kings. It's, I, it's just not a very good... Stalin had been a gangster who really believed he was a social scientist, he says, which is wild to me. Yeah. Like, I mean, just just read his interview with H.G. Wells, like, if you don't think he's a he's a you know, a theorist of any kind. No, yeah, he was, a, like, you literally, like, I don't know, anyone who was actually dealing with him at the time, he was a theorist. Like, I, I think, and I think this is where it also loses me. Like, I think that, like, criticism works better when the criticism is fair, and also, like, it, it'll say, it, it will have, like, criticisms that are legitimate of the Soviet Union, but then it'll do things like this, where it'll be like, Stalin only thought he was smart. And it's like, no, the dude was, or, like, Stalin fancied himself a, a military genius. And it's like, this, he this was. Is, this, like, is wi- this is wild to me as well, like, uh, about Khrushchev specifically. He had tried to stick his thumb in the scales of the strategic balance by putting the missiles in Cuba. No mention of the American missiles in Turkey, by the way. Right. Or, like... like I, sorry, I just listened to the second uh, second season of Blowback. This is still right. fresh for me. <laughs> Right. I, I mean, it's the same. 
it's the same logic as like I don't know read anything Marx writes and he'll spend the first half of it being like and capitalism is good at this and it's good at this and it accomplished this and it pulled off this because it's actually framing the the critique and the plan and the the overall arc of like history in a real historical whatever when you criticize something ideologically uh, you have to actually like reckon with its positives and what it's been able to pull off and how it's served as a progressive mm-hmm. force. Um, and yeah, things. And so when you like fundamentally have these fundamental misunderstandings, it can be very frustrating, especially. And, and look, if this wasn't a book with 50 pages of citations, I'd be less frustrated about this, but it's not like Spufford hasn't done the reading. You know well, what I you mean? know, it's just that some of the reading is Anne Applebaum and Robert fucking Conquest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that's worth that's worth noting. This is like kind of Black Book of Communism level sources, um, which like, you know, some of them, not all of them. Some of them. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, that, that, that's to be, to be fair. A lot of this is legitimate, including a lot of the stuff that is used as critique. A lot of that yes. is legitimate. Yeah. Um, totally. I'm just saying you do have some of that shit, um, spiced in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not all saying Stalin killed 20 million people in Ukraine in a country of 30 million and then Ukraine fielded a 15 million man force in World War II five years later. Yeah. It's most not Ukrainians all, fought for the Red Army, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not all saying mm-hmm. like that level of claim um but it's uh you know it's in it, it, it didn't you know to it's like credit it doesn't quite it doesn't quite go fully down that road of like everyone was executed in the whole soviet union but you know um it flirts with it certainly but it, you know it has its moments where it yeah it's it. yeah we're not we're not going to call this book an outright uh, an outright liberal fable mm-hmm. so then yeah you have khrushchev gets the axe people are like dude we're done we're done with this dude we're not we're not having it anymore he likes corn too much um he, he does throw in a corn joke which i appreciated uh real mm-hmm. heads know khrushchev loves corn um big fan of the cornfields this book says you know a few minutes after being fired he's still looking out over a cornfield explaining the best way to cultivate corn good gag gotta hand it to him um and then, and then, and then, you know, after that, you know, it, it keeps, it keeps moving. You have Emil arguing about economics. Once again, it's like opening up this like thing where the economists are disagreeing on how exactly to implement their perfect system. They're realizing, holy shit, 1980s now only like a decade away or not even, or like 15 years away or something. You know, they, they feel this, this, this squeeze coming on them. Um, they're making these different decisions. History moves on again. Like I'm, I, I'm not going to ex- just. There's, there's so many little conversations or whatever. I would rather talk about uh, psychoprophylaxis. Oh um, God, because that's that's a more interesting way of discussing this than the individual economic conversations. Yeah. Um, and we finally have the return of Galena, um, in a really horrifying con- circumstance. Uh, you want to speak on that, Lenore? Yeah, she's so she's uh, by this point she's fallen out with the uh, with the guy that she was with um, in way back at the um, the American Expo, right? Volodya. Because seeing Tupperware broke her brain too much. Yeah, exactly. You know, and now she's with the this guy Fyodor, right? That's her husband. This guy Fyodor. Fyodor. Yeah, I hardly know her. Okay. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we we had to do that. We had to do that before we moved on. And, yes, and Fyodor's mother is the one who's unfortunately still attractive to men, and it throws in the detail that she fucks very these men very loudly in their apartment. Fyodor's mom has got it going on. 
Okay, yeah, you're that uh, counter-revolutionary execution <laughs> right now. You've been you've been charged with uh, anti-Soviet crimes. And, yeah. What is that? Bowling for bowling for soup? Bowling for uh, for corn? I don't know. Bowling for uh, I don't have anything. Go on. No way. Bol- Bolsheviking for. <laughs> no, is it is it bowling for super fans of win? I always get those two mixed up. I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so they're in a deteriorating marriage. Uh, Fyodor is kind of a higher up kind of dude. Um, he drinks a lot. He eventually starts hitting her. Nevertheless, um, she's had a couple of abortions by this time. And finally, they stop putting it off. They have a kid. And she's pregnant. And oh boy, it's time to go to the hospital and have the kid. And this is where... Oh boy, I sure hope this isn't a metaphor. Yeah, and this is... <laughs> This this the this assessment came to me like as we were discussing her at the um at the expo, but there is there is something a little bit punitive about this. M- maybe not punitive, but like you know. No, I agree. It's a little. Yeah. It's a little masochistic. Yeah, you know there there is there is a certain um because she because she gets there and uh, she's like oh you didn't she the, the 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 nurse tells her oh you know you didn't take the uh the psychoprophylaxis uh classes you know you didn't take uh what essentially is like the um, like Lamaze, basically yeah bas- basically Lamaze. and she's like no i didn't think um i didn't think that was um i thought that, that was just like uh what was it like she thought it was just like child care stuff anyway yeah. there's there's some there's something that she was supposed to have read but didn't that's supposed to like get you through the birthing process and it's painful and oh by the way the elevator's broken so she's got to walk up the stairs while she's in labor and, and uh, the floor is dirty and the nurses are mean and yes. and, which, and they're screaming it's yeah which time. again you know there is there is there is testimony to like certain faci- certain facilities looking looking like this here and there yeah no doubt notes. i'm sure there was yeah i'm sure um it has god the description of childbirth here is just horrifying like just it, what what does it say? It says uh, she's trying to breathe or whatever, and then it says the feelings change. Quote in quantity of discomfort and therefore in quality too, until they began to stab holes in her in deep breaths and leave her gasping with the breath forced up into a tiny bouncing flutter in her throat, and everything further down surging along out of control. It was not squeezing that she felt anymore. It was a crushing, a pulping. It mm-hmm. was not stretching now, but tearing. It put her in mind of what she'd seen butchers doing in the big meat lockers twisting apart joints against the angle of the bones the cartilage popping the fibers of the meat pulling out in red strings end quote and this goes on for like three pages yeah like it is fucking brutal it's it's well written i gotta hand it to him yeah he's and she's like watching the clock and i mean it's just horrifying yeah the the bit about the the bit about the uh second hand failing her i thought was was uh was a Mm -hmm. was a pretty i liked uh, I like the craft of it, I should say, you know, and ultimately what she because that's the thing, like um, she doesn't get painkillers for this until until she pulls rank until she uh, says to the midwife, my husband is the Komsomol secretary at Elektrozavodskaya. Um, he has friends everywhere at the city Soviet, at the party control commission. Some of them supervise the hospitals, she said. And the word hospitals came out with a hiss. They would be very upset if he were upset. Do you understand me? It's, I mean, the metaphor here is not difficult to point out, right? You know, it's somebody who's, who's, uh, brutalized and who's, uh, and whose life is made very painful and who is, uh, effectively failed by this system. 
who has to pull rank, who has to say, who has to say, okay, I'm going, I'm alienated from this and I'm going to, um, you know, leverage whatever, whatever uh, illicit connection that I have to get what I need out of this system. I, I don't mean to, you know, derail anything, but why did Galena sound so turned on when she said hospitals? Says it's got the hospital. The way you said that killed me. <laughs> the nurse, the nurse looking down at her. Yeah, no, terrible. Uh, apologies. Um, but yeah, no, it, and, and I mean, like, it, and it, it, this part is all, it's kind of like, oh, well, it's the failure of the system and they are recreating hierarchy. And, and yeah, that, that's, and yeah, it's a, I think you're right. I think it's like, it's kind of sadistic. It's kind of like, it feels a little bit like, yeah, you you believed in the system, and now you're getting ripped up by a baby. Which um, that's the thing. Like, it's not a sin to believe in this, right? It's not a sin to you know. Galena you know, doesn't really believe in it. That that's the thing. Galena's had yeah. her belief shattered, so I don't mm-hmm. even. It's a little weird that she's like the character here, right? Wouldn't mm-hmm. it make more sense for the moment Galena doesn't like believe anymore to be here? Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, it would be a really foul thing to do to to make. I will say to make a character like change political ideology and get owned by childbirth. But like, it would make more thematic sense in the context of the book. Yes, yes. Um, uh, the book also acknowledges in the footnotes that actually it was common for women to get painkillers in Soviet hospitals while giving childbirth. I was about to say, yeah, a little weird. But yeah, no doubt, no doubt it happened. Um, no doubt it happened. Um, you know, neither here nor there. Worth noting, most American hospitals have VIP wings. Um, so if we want to talk about, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I was, I was, I was, um, the dollop has a really good episode on childbirth in America. Mm. And like, you know, unfortunately, it's, uh, this is not Bad. a problem. Yeah. This is not a problem unique to, uh, the Soviet Union, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, indeed, like when, when there is a profit motive in childbirth, let's say, you know, and say, you know, getting a C-section as I was, um, happens to uh, get the doctor out uh, quicker in time for his lunch break, you know, sometimes that's what will be pushed, mm. you know, not saying that's what happened in my case, but you know, that's, you know, that is a problem on an enormous scale here that is not being remedied by any, by any, um, you know, political avenue open to people here. Absolutely. Um, as we know, you were a C-section because you were, um, you're, you're going to fulfill Macduff style prophecy. You know what this this is this is interesting the um um so I was born in Texas right and this was in 1993 yeah yeah I know it's it's uh, it's not great there right now folks um but this was in 1993 um so you know Roe v Wade had been around for like 20 years at that point and um there was a non-zero chance that I'd be born with like developmental disabilities based on some tests you know I wasn't of course but they needed an amniocentesis to um to confirm right you know my parents would have you know raised me no matter what but like the point is you know they need to know what they're you know about to deal with no doubt yeah and the hospital didn't want to give mom the tests you know why because they told her straight up their words you're fishing for a reason to get an abortion oh my god and that's you know and you know thankfully you know my family uh my family threatened to make some noise about it but uh, and ultimately got the test that they needed but like that's that's the thing right they're there is under capitalism, you know, there are forces of reaction, you know, there are forces of, you know, misogyny and there are forces of exploitation that want you to, you know, not even exercise autonomy over your own body, not just in the sense of, you know, 
the right to get an abortion as is on our minds lately. But, you know, anything even adjacent to that, you know, okay. you don't. But to be fair, that was 1993. Mm-hmm. Under the enlightened rule of President Joe Biden, everything's been fixed. <laughs> now, let me just take a sip of coffee and open up the newspaper and, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yep, 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 yep. It's, yeah, there's, it's there's, gotten uh, worse, folks. Yeah, there's, 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 some, uh, there's some shit. There's some sh- fuck shit's gone down recently, yeah, hasn't it's there? Gotten, it's gotten worse, not better. Yeah. Um, you know, so, my, yeah, my point being, like, this, this is not a problem that is unique to socialism, A, but under capitalism, you know, there's a hell of a lot less opportunity to, to um, you know, to make the reforms necessary. There's a hell of a lot, lot less involvement in the, um, in the struggle for it. Certainly not, um, not in the halls of power. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, Galena went home with no medical debt. <laughs> that's 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 the other thing yes you know there there is a there is an infrastructure of there is an infrastructure of child care and of health care that existed there that didn't that doesn't exist here it glosses over the uh required week women have to spend in the hospital 10 days on, for 10 have. days completely covered by the state um i don't know a little bit like it glosses over that but like that's pretty cool um, I'm sure not all of those women had the greatest time, depending on like the context, depending on how. But again, uh, you know, like, was. like no matter, you know, can you, you imagine use, you use this anecdote as an indictment of one system? You know, I can point you to any number of of, you know, much more damning indictments of a system that cannot be reformed. Right. You know, exactly. as as opposed to a system that, you know, historically wasn't given the opportunity to reform, wasn't given the opportunity to even develop on its own terms. You know, that's the fundamental difference here. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, all of this to say that, you know, you know, I've told I've told my story. There are millions of people in this country who do not have who who do not have those sorts of resources, A. But B, you know, there existed a baseline in the Soviet Union that doesn't even exist here. Well, you like metaphors. I do. Would you like another metaphor? Yes, please. Would you like to learn how lung cancer works? <laughs> Because that's what the next chapter. <laughs> yes. Okay. And again, I res- I you know you're going to explain it, uh, and but I'll just preface this by saying I completely respect what he's doing here. I picked up on it the first couple of times that uh, that he went through this. He goes through this like five times, and uh, I mean thematically it's redundant um, with this uh, horrific birth scene. A, but B, well, you know. Take it, take it away, Jacob. So Lebedev, one of the ministers, um, basically, you know, he walks in to talk, you know, to talk to, um, who's he talk to? Uh, is he talking to, uh, uh, Topsian? Well, he's talking to one of them. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, y'all can tell, you know, I'm a socialist. I'm bad, bad with Russian. Um, anything even remotely out there. Um, well, don't worry. Regardless, so Lebedev. Fair enough. By his own uh, mission. <laughs> Lebedev smokes mad unfiltered unfiltered cigarettes. Socialism is when you smoke sixty unfiltered cigarettes a day. Um, you know, Lebedev understands that despite all public health warnings, smoking is the hottest thing you can do. Um, it's you know, it's I, it's it's pretty sexy. Not gonna lie. <laughs> It's it's really frustrating. I, people really they the anti smoking campaigns they want us to say it's not hot. Um, you know we 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 just got to reckon with that, folks. We got to reckon with it. Nevertheless, we are, we, we are a pro smoking podcast. Everybody, go out and uh, tell your kids about no no no. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> you know I do not smoke. 
the only time I've ever smoked was a, uh, was a cigarillo behind a bar one time when I was absolutely plastered and I like coughed. I coughed and almost like almost threw up on like a guy I was flirting with. Uh, did not. Did not get lucky that oh, night. Oh man, you almost, <laughs> you almost pulled a chainsaw man on him. Yeah, <laughs> I don't get the reference, but I'll take your word for it. Nevertheless, uh, Lebedev is having Le- Lebedev is developing lung cancer, and it just goes into like the specifics of like the machines of lungs are you know they're they're when the foreign bodies introduced, then this can happen genetically, and this can, and there's a very small chance this could happen, and there's a very small, and it like does it over and over as he's doing a scene, it's doing the smash cut back and forth of him talking about like the economy, and then it'll cut to him, and it'll be like uh, you know. Uh, the hungry electron seeking blob of goop slips through there in the front of the floating 23 pairs of tempting targets. The huge fat friendly electronic rich chromosomes of human DNA. And it, it goes on and then it goes, and it happens over and over and it says, this has happened billions of times. This has happened millions of times. This has happened. Like, and then eventually imagine, it only. Imagine the Mr. DNA scene from Jurassic Park, but it's like half an hour long. Right, exactly, and and interspersed with uh no. If Mister DNA explained this, then I would it, like if he was like with the Politburo was sitting there and Mister DNA like dances and he's like, let me tell you about why the Soviet economy collapsed. <laughs> um, that would be kind of awesome. Um, but yeah, basically, it it ends up getting to like eventually lung cancer can be created if it keeps on. No matter how much inertia there is in the system, no matter how many breaks. There can be the ultimate failure of the system, and then that'll obviously kill Lebedev. And by this thing's convoluted logic, also kill the Soviet economy. Here's my question: in this in this um, scenario, I understand that the uh, the metaphor is that the heart and lungs are the economy that have a bunch of fail safes, but eventually they can fail, and they only have to fail once to fail. What do the cigarettes represent exactly? I mean, I guess the cigarettes are, uh, are, I don't know, whatever spurs, whatever spurs, uh, this or that contradiction in the system. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna claim to be a, um, to, to be a, uh, diviner of Spufford's, uh, uh, patterns of thought. But I mean, you know, the, 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 it, it's, it gets across nonetheless. Yeah, you know, and it and it ends with the effects of carcinoma on a major airway include shortness of breath, weight loss, bone pain, chest and abdominal pain, hoarseness, difficulty swallowing. It goes on. I will uh, say, like the you know, the you know the the presence of cigarettes, um, you know, as an inciting force implies that you know there are there are these external pressures, you know, that ultimately mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately uh, beat the system down, you know. Yeah, uh, it, it's. I don't think it's actually trying to interrogate that, but nevertheless, you know, you, right. one could one could say the system is healthy on its own without the input from the outside can i can i just read this re- this uh, really disgusting bit yeah, here please. um uh, it begins as a commonplace wheeze and uh okay uh when he coughs she clicks her tongue disgustedly true it is a disgusting noise he makes it begins as a commonplace wheeze in his throat but tumbles down into his chest where it hacks and rattles and audibly moves clots of viscous wet stuff around till the wet stuff has been dragged up into his airway and he is in a gasping, gargling struggle to get it off his epiglottis and out so that he can breathe again. He spits into his handkerchief, clean this morning, now stiff and crusty, stained with nameless emulsions. He's been bringing up the traditional jade mayonnaise of bronchitis every winter for as long as he can remember. But this is something different, something thicker and redder and meatier, like liquescent liver. Meteor. 
gross. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, again, I love where the where it isn't um where it isn't like hand carrying stuff over a rise, as you know, the New York Times book review put it. You know, I do like I do like the, the those individual prose moments. And and at this point the book's kind of wrapping up. It wraps up with some of the characters in the town of scientists where it's like, oh well, you know, they are having disagreements and they're falling out with the government and this program's not working, the government's settling into its own thing and it's just decided it can make money on oil and continue to exist. Um and and you know you have like the return of Sasha Galich, the musician. At one point, he sings like an anti, like, like a sort of snide anti-Soviet song at this party. I, I, you have anything to say about this part? It's, I feel like it's just kind of wrapping up, like the characters. Not really. Like Galich is, I mean, for for all the time that uh, Spufford spends with him, and Spufford and Spufford spends, um, Spufford spends, Spufford spends. Say that five times fast. He spends, you know intimate moments with these characters but i mean we haven't seen gallich to my memory since that um since he was introduced right running that song past the uh, censor and now he's just like look you know i'll, I'll find um i'll find my creative outlet uh, among people who are uh, who are also kind of fed up with what's going on here you know and there's yeah. there's there are there are spaces certainly for um there are spaces certainly for jokes and for discontent and for just a kind of simmering, um, you know, simmering resentment of the system. But, you know, again, we keep, you know, I hate to keep harping on about it. You know, the Soviet Union was dissolved against the democratic will of, of you know, the people who voted on it. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, there are plenty of problems with it. There are plenty of, uh, of uh, contradictions. You know, its fall need not have been inevitable. Hmm. Highly recommend someone read something simple, even like black shirts and reds or something like that. Really, we'll go into that. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend. Very accessible book. And there's there's plenty, but if you really want one that really go to it quick. Um, And then, you know, the last chapter, um, you have Khrushchev. Khrushchev's bummed out. You, you got to feel bad for Khrushchev a little bit. I do find it interesting. Zoya's reading Dr. Zhivago here, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were we were talking about this the other day. Like it was I mean, it the whole book itself from beginning to end wasn't an op, but there was an effort by the CIA to help disseminate it in the West. Mm-hmm. So yeah, interesting thing there. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but well, you know, it's, it's stuff filtering in that ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's the, you know, um, I'm not saying Dr. Zhivago is cancer. I've never read the book. I never read a word Boris Pasternak has written, but you know, it occupies that space in Spufford's metaphor. Anyway, sorry. Sure. But yeah, the end you have Khrushchev and he's, you know, bummed out, and he's like, "Man, I wanted to do epic, epic uh, computer communism, and now I live on Holy a fully luxuriated, luxuriated, automated space gay trans communism. communism. Yeah. yeah, trans gay communism with corn characteristics. Yeah. Um, and so he's just like chilling, and he's like, "Well, His- this didn't work." I do, Man. I do, I do love how this starts off. You know, like I mean, I like, I like, I like the. I like a good arc, you know, mm-hmm. and what he's remembering here, uh, he just had a nostalgic memory of the way the meetings had been at the beginning in some raw built concrete room under a bare bulb with a newly literate secretary stumbling proudly through the big words of the agenda. And he had hoped that he'd find something like that again. If they let him join in once more with the donkey work of painting May Day banners and giving speeches in lunchrooms and visiting kindergartens, ex- expounding Pravda editorials to workers at shift in, make them laugh, 
that was the secret. You know, like it's 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 something, you know, especially that little parenthetical, right? You know, it's it's the sense of a story relayed to you by, you know, a, a very old a very old relation who can only give you a um, you know, the barest sense of what this stuff was like and how fulfilling it was before, you know, the structure that uh, was built upon it became uh, became unwieldy. One can't help but get the feeling that Spufford has like a little bit of fondness for Khrushchev. Um, yeah, and and Khrushchev is just a fun character in general. Um, I've always wanted to, if I ever write historical fiction, have something with Khrushchev in it. Because uh, he he's just if you read his transcripts of his conversations with anyone, they are just so funny. Like he is just genuinely such a funny guy. Um, that. This is not that's not like very material. I'm not like doing an analysis of Khrushchev as a socialist. I'm just saying it's an he's a very interesting guy. So I think the funnier you are, the better socialist you are. That that's true. That's true. Uh, I think that's maybe what just Spufford like spent too much time reading Khrushchev. And he's like, man, I got to give this old man something here. Um, But it is I do like the idea because it doesn't have like Khrushchev's death in this book. So I like the idea that he's like on this farm, like kind of washed up and it's like. You could imagine like someone showing up and it's like Khrushchev, we gotta go on one last job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got one, you know, like like a Logan style story where Khrushchev returns. <laughs> Nick Fury Nick Fury comes to Khrushchev and he's got the kid from Amelis, like we're talk we're putting together a team. <laughs> and he and he's like, Who's gonna lead it? And then he's and he's like an old friend, and then like Stalin like steps out and he's like yes. robot Stalin or some shit. Or like fucking Mecha robot, Stalin, let's like, go. Or like like Lenin's head, like controlling a mech or some shit. It's like yeah, the whole we're we're bringing back together a team. See, this is know? the thing. Like under under socialism, like when the when there is a you know common fund for people to uh, pursue whatever um, whatever film projects, whatever music projects, whatever creative efforts they want, right? You know, you're gonna get a lot of a lot of uh, I don't want to say vanity projects, but you're gonna get a lot of of crazy shit. You know. Mm-hmm. Some and of it might even be, be good. That's yeah, that's going to be beautiful. You know, not all of it is going to be good. A lot of it's going to be cringe, but you know, it's 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 you you look for you look for outsider arts, right? You know, like you look for outsider arts because it's genuinely unlike anything you've ever seen. Snap, this one is going in my cringe compilation. But <laughs> we respect the try, comrade. Um I want to read the last paragraph of the book, how the book ends, aside from the end notes. Because right after this Khrushchev chapter, the book ends, um, and it returns, um, it returns to, uh, to, um, Leonid, um, you know, and it says, and this is east of Khrushchev. And when the light fades, the flesh is gone. The room is empty. Years pass. The Soviet Union falls, the dance of commodities resumes, and the wind in the trees of Akadem Garak says, can it be otherwise? Can it be? Can it be? Can it ever be otherwise? And that's how the book ends. Well, I mean, the answer to that is necessarily yes. You know, it has to be. I mean, we... We live in a world that is only just now seeing the effects of the pollution and uh, climate change of um, of the 1990s. You know, that's a lagging indicator. You know, it's going to get much worse. You know, we live in a country where uh, real wages have been stagnated, stagnant for uh, for you know our entire lifetimes. Um, 
you know, we live in a world where, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, regional wars breaking out because the United States is flailing as it uh, as its um, hegemony declines inevitably and uh, necessarily. And, you know, going forward, it has to be otherwise, you know, there has to be a paradigm, you know, globally and in all its various incarnations that involves the great majority of people in its construction and accrues to their benefit, because if not, we dead end, you know, and I don't want to. Again, I don't want to harp on this too hard. I think Spufford says, yes, it has to be otherwise. Yes, it can be otherwise, but only if, uh, you know, if uh, things go differently. Um, it is just astonishing to me that, you know, one would, one would reserve such... Um, that one would view the, the Soviet Union in such... You know, in, in, in such a light as um as he's as he's doing in retrospect here, you know, as something that uh, was started with good intentions, but that ultimately became something very brutal and terrible because, you know, certainly there were problems with it. But for m- many millions of people, it was the first taste of, you know, being masters of their own destiny, you know, of having a genuinely increasing standard of living that their parents didn't. You know, I mean, you you look at you look at China now. You know, you look at China now and its elimination of extreme poverty in in that country, you know, have there been contradictions along the way? Yes. You know, listen to uh, um, our free body episode and uh, me poorly explaining the cultural revolution, you know, all this, that and the other. But you have to get past the profit motive. You have to get past the, you know, the ruling class of people that seeks to own and control everything that uh, does own pretty much everything. Um, And that's why I find this book so frustrating. You know, because there are bits and pieces of it, uh, as we'll touch on in the end notes, that are just wildly, wildly, you know, out of proportion with reality, you know, and handed down to us from um, from that same ruling class. Like, um, it's frustrating. No doubt. And, and And notably, like, you know, you don't even have to look, you know, look at the Soviet Union. Look at Russia. Look what happens when the Soviet Union falls. Look who inherits it. Look at, I mean, life expectancy collapses there in a massive way. Seven million excess deaths, you know, the, you know, the highest, the highest, um, you know, highest in any peacetime, um, in any peacetime um, um, era since the, since the Black Death. The country is intentionally basically inherited by like gangsters and stuff like by the dude with the anti-Semitic. Yeah. I mean, just, Uh, just look at, um, just look at, there's a, there's a, there's a, I think it's on Vimeo, um, but I'm going to support the artist as well. Of course. Um, there is a short video essay called, um, this fall, the fall of communism as seen through gay pornography. I think that's the title. And it's about the flood of young Eastern European men into a sex industry that is just salivating at the prospect of uh, people whose whose uh, assurances are suddenly stripped away. Right. You know, you, I have... mean, you, 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 you look at that and you tell me that the fall of the Soviet Union was a net positive. You have. I dare you. Yep, you have the United States having to directly intervene in Russian democracy and Russian parliament and everything to keep socialists from retaking power in the country. Um, and I mean, I mean, I, I don't know when you're listening to this, but as of today, which is the 5th of January, 2024, there is a brutal war going on between Ukraine and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been unimaginable. Um, give in the time of red plenty that would have been that would have would have broke would have 
people that was just not on the table. There is, there is, and we don't know where that's going or how that's going to end or there's so much. And, and, you know, like we can obviously go into Russia and how it's changed and what it serves and how it serves as a, you know, in some ways as a block to American imperialism. That's not really the point here. My point is that there is the introduction of capitalism, the abandonment of the planned economy, call it what you will, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't, the, the dance of commodities resuming uh, did not, you know, guarantee commodities to these oppressed and downtrodden masses. It did not guarantee freedom to anyone. Um, and I think anybody who is reflecting on this and looking at the future, we have to ask ourselves, well, what do we learn from the past? What do we learn from books like this? And what do we learn from, you know, real history? And what do we learn from our own experiences? And how do we look towards the future? I also just want to note, like, just on the matter of just the practicality of a planned economy, like a super planned economy, if nothing else, we certainly have uh, the, the capacity now to do some of the things that were not technologically feasible for the Soviet Union to do with computers, with digitization, with just like cyber control of the economy. So if nothing else, you know, we have that. If if, if you want to just talk about like failures in the system of like the system didn't account for this, that or the other, if nothing else, we have that. And right now that technology is being used towards the hyper optimization of the collection of capital. It is being used towards figuring out high, how, how high it can raise rents without evicting a enough people to lose profits um, it is being how, used things like to, that it is being used to you know make predictions of um how many civilians are going to uh, be killed in uh, this or that strike on gaza in israel right. it's you planning know? it's planning you know it now we have the capacity to plan it's just what it's being planned for so why don't we plan it towards human good uh we have no reason to not do that no matter what may or may not have happened what failures may or may not have occurred um in a similar plan in the 1960s even in the most most uh, uncharitable view of it and that's where the book ends i mean there's a bunch of end notes but uh there's a whole uh, bunch of end notes with i think 50 pages yeah and you know with the fiction stripped away it's it's some of the most heinous it's some of the most interesting stuff in there um coupled with some of the most heinous stuff like uh that bit that i told you uh um, just the other day like uh um where he says oh yes 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 um in 1939, the jazz musician Eddie Rosner, finding himself stuck in Warsaw during the German invasion, presented himself to the Gestapo and demanded assistance as a German citizen, omitting to mention that he was a Jewish German citizen. They lent him a car, and he had himself driven straight to the Soviet forces who would seize the other half of Poland under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. I mean, read the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It's not a deal between Hitler and Stalin to carve up Poland. It's... Poland doesn't even take top billing in Molotov-Ribbentrop. The Baltics do. It refers to spheres of influence, you know, diplomatically speaking, you know, not, um, you know, not, hey, I'll, I'll conquer this, you conquer that. Like, it's, I mean, we're not, we're, not, we're, we're, we're close enough to the end here that we don't need to be, need to get into the weeds of it. But like, there's, there's stuff here that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's 2010, of course, you know, it's 2024 now, things have, things have, uh, you know, things have progressed along, but, you know, by this time, the Soviet archives have been opened. We've learned, we, we've, we, we've learned a lot since then, you know, and we are still debunking a lot of the, a lot of the uh, nonsense that, uh, that people peddle. Yeah, absolutely. But nevertheless, you know, seeing all that research, seeing all that time put in, seeing all the specificity, you know, one has to, one has to be impressed by the work Spufford put into this. One Absolutely. has to be uh I, I think he's very I think he's very smart. I think he's when he really when he's interested in craft, uh when he doesn't get lost in the weeds, he's a 
quite a good writer of prose. I think he can kind of forget himself and uh, kind of go off on a tangent um, and, and lose his prose. But when he really wants to, he can write some really harrowing shit. Um, I think as a short story writer, as a constructor of scenes, he's very competent. Yes. Um, and I definitely would return to him. I'm definitely interested in his new book, uh, Cahokia Jazz. Um, that fascinates me. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in it. Uh, I know he's also like edited some anthologies and so like he's very interested in history in general and he gets on certain kicks. Um, he's a fascinating guy. Um, and I don't want to like walk away from this as like I, you know, I, I'm not walking away from this book like I walked away from like True Allegiance or something, you know? Um, no, no, because True, yeah, because True, I mean, you know, you know the difference between this book and that book. True Allegiance is just, is just a straight up like, you know, white nationalist fable. You know, it's nothing like of, this. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, um, I'm frustrated, not just because it's a critique of something I believe, because that's neither here nor there. I can handle that. But I'm frustrated by the gaps in it. Um, I think that at moments, it's also just like, oh, my God, to get to the point, as, as we said. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, hella ambitious you know, sparks a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of directions you can go from. And as you can tell, it, it, it definitely, it definitely bears reckoning with in some interesting ways. And so at the end of the day, I guess, I, I guess it's kind of like, I would call it, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but it's certainly something that like I'm impressed by, but I was also, you know, uh, I, 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 it's something that like resists me, like trying to rate it or something. You know what I mean? Well, you know, and you know, um, that's appropriate because Bufford likes to write about stuff that resists, you know, that resists being written about. You know, mm-hmm. he's a, he's a, he's a he's a challenging author to be sure, and you know, it's a challenge that I'll happily rise to. Um, when I'm not reading about, uh, you know, what he thinks about the Soviet Union, you know, the 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 um the Robert Falcon Scott expedition to uh, Antarctica in his first book that um that I'll I'll, I'll get to that sometime this year because that's um because that's a fascinating part of history to be sure. No doubt. Well, folks, um, I think my takeaway is somebody needs to do this, but uh, write write what would happen if Leonid had figured out the ultimate supercomputer and then write like a, a Fallout style or like whatever alternate history. Um, I think that would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, my you know, my takeaway, you know, it's 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 the sort of thing where he has put more effort into constructing this fairy tale then you know i certainly have in um in tracking down everything to uh to refute it um maybe it's not materialist of me to say this but you know i am still driven by the by the knowledge that there has to be something better than what we have today and it's hard not to look through history and see shades of what could be and I'm driven by a charismatic leader of a freakish cult. Fuck yeah, you are. <laughs> well, um, that's basically what I've got. Uh, this this has been. I say that like I just we didn't talk for like two plus hours. Like that was like like I said almost nothing. Um, that was a uh, that was a heck of a read. But I was um, I, I you know, we did it. We went through it and. Uh, that's the new year. That's that's how we're that's how we're ringing it in. We're ringing it in with red plenty. So uh, I would say uh, I would say you know 
2024 is is the year of the socialist shelf by you hear her first by 2025 biggest podcast in the world Mm. um and maybe even 100th biggest book related podcast in canada if we can break that that would be even better yes yes the uh one or the the other the people's moose javian republic will rise to uh to prominence thank god well folks next week hopefully you know if you're listening to this when it came out this as it comes out that it'll be next week if you're listening to it later then maybe you'll be able to just scroll and see it we will be recording an episode on tony kushner's the intelligent homosexuals guide to capitalism and socialism with a key to the scriptures it is a play and we will be joined by aj diddy of the worst of all possible worlds podcast which we know y'all love um so very excited for that one yeah yeah that that i'm looking forward to i've ever read kushner since college so this will be a nice a nice uh trip back it's also gonna be you know absolute tonal whiplash but you know (laughs) um as a as someone who considers himself an intelligent homosexual um (laughs) we'll see i need my guide we'll find out if i'm intelligent you know um and and we'll figure out if we can unlock the scriptures as well yeah yeah you know it's it's people have been trying to do that for two thousand years um well you know but with our three heads together I think we could do it. Exactly. Exactly. I, that's well within our capabilities. Absolutely. Well, folks, um, just to close it out, you know, I want you to remember something. Capitalism is when Tupperware. Socialism is when unfiltered cigarettes. Don't forget it. Have a good one. All right. Be sure to smoke, everybody. Bye. listening to Socialist Shelf Radio.